You better be listening to Slezoids or I must break you. Hello, I'm Albert Brooks. I've just completed a motion picture so exciting that the following announcement will be presented in 3D so you can literally feel the excitement. Oh, if you happen to be in a theater that has no glasses, don't worry, you can share in the fun too. Simply turn to the person you're sitting next to and borrow a piece of red and blue cellophane. Then put one over each eye like this. With a click, with a shock, from the Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise, and, and at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Next week, in true Sleezoids fashion, to celebrate the holidays, we're going to talk about some people getting murdered, of course. So join that sleaze. That's right. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover as well. Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for, you know, we're come. I don't even know what we're on. Yeah. Six years? Six some, years? Something, something like that? Somewhere around that. I don't know. Math. Um, so if, if you haven't made... <laughs> If you haven't made the jump yet, patreon.com slash podcast. There's like 150 bonus episodes as well as, I think at this point, 50 bonus transmissions as well where we mm-hmm. talk about new release genre films. There's so much bonus content. I don't even know what we do. I actually looked at our total uploads at one point the other day and looked at like the amount of hours it was and <laughs> kind of put my brain through a bit of a spin for a little Putting bit there. The I, was like, I was like, how long have I been talking into a microphone about movies for? Jesus Christ. <laughs> Um, so, uh, if you haven't made the jump yet, we, we recommend doing that. And speaking of which we, uh, have a whole bunch of shout outs to give out this week. So we'll do that here. We have, um, Fortias who signed up at $5 a month, Victor Caro, uh, Franciszek, uh, Jess, Calvin Vaughn, Mad Michael, LP Gartner, Noah S. McKinnon, Jared Brianess, uh, Volge Tech Tulek, uh, Colin, Daryl Bowen, Ethan Johnson, Quinn, Sam L, John Furry, and last but not least, Raymond Sison. Thanks so much to all of uh, you folks. Hope you are enjoying those bonus episodes, and we appreciate the support. Yes, thank you very much. That is uh, the one plug for the week. The other plug, as uh, always, is Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you are listening on either one of those platforms, and I can see the stats, I see you right now listening on both those platforms, give us a little rating and review over there. It helps us climb the ranks and find new listeners, and we appreciate that support as well. And the very last plug, as always, is merch. If you like the poster art that based out of Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for our show, you can get that put on basically uh, anything that you can think of. And you freaks have thought of a lot of stuff. You've bought uh, pillows, you've bought hoodies, you've bought notebooks. Uh, you can find the link to that in the description of this episode or over at sleuzoidspodcast.com for those interested. But that is it for the intro. Welcome back to another week. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. 
Welcome. Uh, I believe two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks over on the main feed would have heard from us, and we would have uh, been talking to special returning guest Cameron Fetter of Podcast About List and the Monster Crazy Podcast to, uh, of course, bring on a B-horror double feature involving Harry Monsters. Oh, yeah. Uh, we talked, and actually both films had the same title which was uh, part of the gimmick programming of the episode. We talked about a film called Night of the Demon from 1957, uh, which was directed by the legendary Val Luton collaborator Jacques Turner. Um, uh, and obviously was, the, you know, very elegantly stylized, very <laughs> yeah. eerie, slow burn, noir procedural that kind of slowly turns into this more sort of occult folk horror monster movie, including some full on like hairy ass, like Godzilla, you know, kind of style creature murdering some dudes on a train. Yeah. And then, of course, Cameron had to pair that with something that was just the absolute opposite. A, of uh, elegant. For, yeah. <laughs> a, a former porno director uh named james c wasson who in 1980 just made the most like pure video nasty <laughs> bigfoot exploitation grindhouse slasher of just like pure <laughs> absolute bad taste nonsense and we had a blast talking about both those with cameron yes it, it features a very long drawn out scene of a man getting his penis ripped off uh when he's taking a pee in some bushes so it's just it's it's world class stuff. It's it's. And he's like, oh no, big big foot, just like <laughs> ripping his dick off. Just I'm like that's, that's how I, that's how I would respond to that too, probably. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ugh. So if you haven't heard that episode, that was uh, two weeks ago over on the main feed. Go back and check it out. Uh, but then uh, last week over on the Patreon feed exclusively for the patrons, we did a little bit of a uh, left turn. There was a brand new uh, Wonka movie on the way <laughs> and uh, to, 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 to cash in just like right. Charlie and his golden ticket to cash in on this, this extravagant situation. Oh, my God. A new Get Willy those Wonka. Wonka fans. That's right. We uh, we finally talked about uh, finally. I don't know if that's the word I should use. Uh, we we <laughs> talked about the sugary sadism of one Ruald Dahl, and we talked about obviously uh, the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory from 1971, directed by uh, Mel Stewart, uh, which is a very sweet, colorful children's musical um, about a guy who tortures and mutilates children all day. Uh, yeah, and we had just a, a we lot had a great of dark time. undertones. <laughs> That's right. We had a great time talking about that. And also uh, an, another doll adaptation from 1996 that I was kind of excited to talk about uh, because it's directed by short king legend Danny DeVito. Oh, yeah. Uh, and is uh, incredibly uh, grotesque in terms of <laughs> its its visuals that I definitely wanted to talk even more so than Willy Wonka is. So I was excited to get a chance to finally talk about all of the telekinetic revenge in his like sentimental version of Carrie that was Matilda from 1996. Yeah, I uh, ever since that film, I just I can't look at chocolate cake the same. It, I, I will never mm -hmm. eat. I mean, I'm not a big fan of chocolate, as some of the people might know on this show. But uh, but chocolate cake never, that might be why never again. We kind of yeah, we kind of we kind of talked about it. We kind of did a little right. bit of we, therapy we session the with Jamie. We were like, did did Matilda cause this? Did Matilda break <laughs> you as a child? Of chocolate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think so. Honestly, <laughs> yeah. So, so if you if you want to hear more about that, that was on last <laughs> week's uh, Patreon episode for anyone who's uh, interested. 
Um, but uh, moving on to this week, we have a very special uh, returning guest who hasn't been on the show for a little while, but last time he came on, he picked a very good uh, double feature, and it was very memorable for us when we when we talked to, talk to him about it. So we knew that we were going to have him on again, and we are glad to finally do so today. Many of you will know him uh, on Twitter under the name Sriracha Chow, and that guest is Michael Chow. Michael, how you doing? <laughs> good. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming back. No problem. Yeah, thanks for yeah, thanks course. for coming back. It was it was nice to actually uh, in between these two sessions that we done actually meet you. We went out for Thai food yeah. in L.A. Yeah, yeah, that was a blast. Good Thai yeah, food sh- too. Well, yeah, jealous. I mean you guys you guys you guys showed me the uh, the iconic spot Jitlada that I had not known about. Mm-hmm. It was just in a small like kind of like strip mall looking area, and him and Eddie and Doc were all there, and they were like, and Rob was there, and they were like. Trust me, it's worth standing outside this place in the rain for over an hour. <laughs> and I was like, okay, but you know, but we did it, and it was great. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You also saw the um, the long goodbye uh, apartment, did you not? Yes, while I was there, Eddie, awesome. Eddie took me over to that. That was a blast. Yeah, LA LA trip, good vibes. Uh, lots of movie magic going around in that in that city. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it was nice. It was nice to meet a bunch of the people that sometimes we only hear uh, over the microphone as well, <laughs> and over the internet. So, but uh, but Michael, welcome back. Um, last time, obviously, we had you on. We were doing the King of Comedy and uh, Perfect Blue, which was a really cool uh, pairing. I wouldn't have thought mm-hmm. of just because I actually hadn't seen Perfect Blue until you brought it on, and it ended up mm. being a really cool pairing. Um, yeah. So we knew we wanted to have you back, and obviously the guests choose choose the double features. So, uh, what two films have you brought with you this week, and why did you pair these two together? Uh, we are doing an Albert Brooks double feature. We are doing Real Life and Defending Your Life. Uh, just a big fan of Albert Brooks, and I've always found him like just very charming. I like him. Definitely. <laughs> That's very succinct and very well. And, and 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 two part of it was I I went up to you and I was like, look, there's there's a, there's a couple things that I, I kind of wanted to find something that Michael really liked to to talk yeah. about. And uh, I kind of I kind of threw it your way. I was like, you know, we've never talked about Albert Brooks on our show before. So yeah. if you ever if, like if you ever if you ever his, uh, his like documentary just came out. It's oh, very yeah. true with his pal Rob Reiner. He he sat yeah. down and and he defended his own life um, <laughs> in 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 front of everyone. And, uh, yeah, no, it's uh, Albert Brooks. He's, he's back in the news. He's an amazing comedian. He's definitely not someone we, ama- we kind of inherently think about. I don't know if I call him a particularly sleazy guy. I think we joked last week that the sleaziest thing he's probably done is played the Jewish gangster in, in drive or mm-hmm. just been yeah. involved in, in taxi driver, you know, maybe right. those are probably the, the, <laughs> the two most uh, <laughs> sleazy things he's, he's been involved with. But, uh, I do, I did actually go on an Albert Brooks Brooks binge i want to say in like 2020 or 2021 maybe and uh, i yeah. did most i did most of his um run from real life through defending your life including in uh, everything in between so as soon as uh michael picked these two films i was like these are the two fi-. like i threw albert brooks's way and i was like these are the two films i absolutely would have picked to pair together too um it's also easy they both have life in the, in, in their title but I, I it's also a cool pairing um just because like one 1979 it's the it's his literally his debut film it's when he first figured out mm-hmm. how to translate his kind of postmodern sort of like cynical comic persona into a film and by defending mm-hmm. your life in 1991 
he was actually kind of shedding that a little bit and and trying to bring yeah. it more into like a formulaic sort of Hollywood sort of like rom-com uh, while actually, you know, not retaining most of what makes, you know, him him still, mm-hmm. which is why I think it's kind of it's, it's going to be cool to kind of follow that trajectory of him, you know, kind of in the punk comedy mode of I'm going to make <laughs> you all cringe and maybe laugh uncomfortably to I'm going to kind of make you feel warm things and cry. And it's a it's a very interesting arc that he went through as a filmmaker. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It it also seems like in in real life, although it has plenty of it in uh, defending your life. Um, but with real life, there's a lot of that that self deprecating humor. Um, even with himself, I mean, he plays a very you know charismatic, confident person. But a lot of the things he does is is clearly just just outlandish and weird and and kind of you and know, he's, he's like kind just of an straight up like sociopathic. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then defending your life, it's a little bit and I guess it goes along with it becoming more of like a, a more mainstream kind of film but um it's a little bit more lighthearted in that sense it's still very self-deprecating he's still writing his character as someone that has you know has kind of like cowardly attributes and stuff like that yeah there's but, literally an Albert Brooks like fail compilation exactly exactly but I do like seeing that evolution um and I and I gotta see some of the stuff in between I, I'm very interested now so yeah, this is Jamie's first stab at Albert Brooks. I'm very excited about yeah. it. He's he's incredible, and we'll we'll definitely talk about some of the stuff that happened uh, in between when we uh, um, have to kind of bridge the gap between real life and defending your life. But if mm-hmm. we're gonna get started here, uh, let's start off with with the man's origins. Let's go back to his directorial debut film, Real Life. What's that noise? Excuse me. Oh my God. I'm Randy Brown. You're the world champion paddleball player. Right. What are you doing here? I come to see a new movie. Real life? Right. Well, Randy, you're a little early. It hasn't opened yet. Then I'll just leave. Oh, no, no, no. Don't leave. I mean, what a coincidence. As long as you're here, thrill us. Okay. Oh my. Mind if I join you? This could be amazing. All right. We are talking real life. The 1979 American satirical mockumentary style comedy film written, directed, and starring Albert Brooks, co-written by his regular screenwriting collaborator Monica Johnson and uh, actor Harry Shearer, who would eventually uh, co-write This is Spinal Tap with Albert Brooks's good buddy Rob Reiner, which this predates in terms of the mockumentary movies by, whatever, five years, Mm -hmm. Um, and co-starring alongside Brooks, Charles Grodin. Francis Lee McCain and J.A. Preston, among others. But as I mentioned, this is our very first time talking about uh, the American actor, comedian, and filmmaker, Mr. Albert Brooks, uh, who has uh, has uh, as all of the amounts of life that are included uh, in the titles of his films, he had a very interesting life. He was um, born to a uh, 1930s singer and actress um, uh, named Thelma Leeds and a radio comedian uh, named Harry Einstein or Park Your Carcass that some people might be familiar with. That is such a funny <laughs> <laughs> stage name uh, to, 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 to in, in, inhabit. But his two parents uh, were both uh, in, in the, the film industry and in the comedy industry in, in California. They both met while shooting a film called The New Faces of 1937 together. And uh, they they named the dude Mother Albert Einstein. 
Um, <laughs> that's a lot of pressure that's, there. <laughs> yeah, what a, his dad is an incredible comedian, as you can like already tell, and it, it resulted in him changing his name to Brooks to avoid the easy gag every time he was going to appear on or write for some sort of variety or talk show, which in the 1970s was his primary uh, comedic outlet. He was on the Johnny Carson show, the Tonight Show, Letterman, Ed Sullivan, Dean Martin, like literally like every variety show you can think of. He was probably on in 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 some capacity. Have you and, seen uh, any growing of his up, uh, stand-up by any chance? I haven't myself. I I, I, d- I didn't get I've a chance seen, like, to actually see. Yeah, clips. I've I've seen quite a lot of clips of his like variety show. Okay. Um, appearances i haven't actually seen like listen to one of like the stand-up records that's kind of what mm-hmm. i have to do next yeah uh, i like to do I, that I, now yeah. see what what kind of talk I, I always segments like, seeing... are like i'll say like the talk show segments are like why see like he was just trying it on like on the talk show mm. yes these are like not things he did at, like open mics or anything yeah yeah what i'd like to see is him do, like just see what he extracts i guess from his stage show if anything um that he uh, uh, applies to specifically i guess real life just because it was his debut because i feel like a lot oh, of comedians he, he absolutely tend to does. do that yeah yeah he, he absolutely does well and and it, the, uh, the thing to know about his his early career a lot of this go, is kind of gone over a little bit in the rob reiner doc that came out recently for anyone who's interested which i didn't think was a very good movie but i mm. like albert brooks and the subject matter is like good and like even just a clip <laughs> show of albert brooks it's good right, uh, it's right. just yeah. it, it it's it's on a filmmaking level it is kind of like a glorified like bonus feature on like a blu-ray and a lot of like weird like guests like uh brian uh What's his name? Uh, Brian Williams is a part of it, and like Neil uh, deGrasse, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Tyson, Tyson and like Jonah Hill, or like just strange people they interview <laughs> to talk about. It. Yeah, that's a weird. One, like these yeah. are not comedy people, other than like Jonah Hill, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that is a strange. No, it was one. <laughs> just like strange people that they chose to interview. Like filmmaking wise, not great, but for as a basic basic primer or overview for Albert Brooks and especially his early stuff, which I wasn't that familiar with. So I wanted to watch that and then mm-hmm. also go and look up some of the full clips that they showed throughout. Cause there's a lot of great clips and, and it was very clear that, you know, he, what made him special was that he did kind of grow up in a, a show business family where his dad would just kind of have legendary comedians and actors over for dinner. And on, I listened to the Marin podcast that he was on when the, the documentary dropped as well. And he told a story about like making Eddie Cantor laugh when he was like five years old. You know, oh, okay. and 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 that Carl Reiner was basically like a surrogate father for him and that all these guys on variety shows, they just kind of liked him. And that was how he was able to sometimes get his way into a guest spot where he would just like bomb and he would experiment and he would figure things out. And it was why he was so confident by the time he eventually got to things like the um, Johnny Carson show, where he finally was crafting his own like meta sort of self-reflexive cringe comedy perform you know, performance and persona that would define a lot of American comedy moving Mm -hmm. forward. Like if you like what Nathan Fielder does, for example, right now with the documentary format and that kind of comedy, and you haven't seen any Brooks, then I would like very highly recommend, um, that, that you do. And I was going to actually say like with, um, with Nathan for you, it, it it definitely reminds me of even, I I guess his other show that he did, I think a year or two ago, the, uh, the rehearsal, um, is, is very mm. similar to this in a sense where it's just like a guy um, almost setting up a, cer- a certain family life situation so that he can like vicariously live through them in, in a way. It's like the, he's it's he's reaching out because of his loneliness, but he's also got this the way that Brooks does it, though, he has a lot more uh, confidence. You know, he's not as, as dweeby as Nathan Fielder kind of plays it. 
um, Brooke still has this like, you know, the charisma and, and he's, he's just a, a very smooth talker the entire time. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that's what I liked about seeing some of his early stuff, like in, in the doc, like due to his upbringing, he like, he very much approached every bit from the perspective of like, kind of like what would make another professional comedian laugh. Mm-hmm. He had a kind mm-hmm. of postmodern view of stage comedy. He was constantly highlighting the artificiality of it or the relationship to the profession and, and, and to the audience and, and, you know, was obviously willing to kind of caricature and do an ironic v- vision of himself, make himself narcissistic, make himself kind of pathetic or obnoxious mm-hmm. or, or, or self-obsessed in the way that, you know, he kind of maybe felt show business or professional comedians kind of kind of could be. And so he got a reputation as being like a sort of deconstructionist, like conceptual yeah. comedian. He was willing to be subversive and, and strange. He would do a comedy routine that you maybe had seen before, but he he would find a way to make it strange or to make it like not even have a punchline, which then kind of made it uncomfortable and, and <laughs> which then made it funny. And, um, so many of the like early talk show stuff that he did that if you can find these clips for them, they're incredible. Like a mime routine that he did where he began, like he was a very serious mime taking the craft, like incredibly like this is my art. And then the second he started it, he started describing everything that he was doing with his mouth. He just went like motor mouth mode. He broke every rule because of how impressed he was with his own miming physicality. So there's a there's a great clip of him doing that. There's another one where he's like an elephant trainer, but the whole bit is that there's like there's no elephant because off stage the elephant got sick and now he has to continue the show. He's like, I have to give you a show though. You understand? So, he so like here a dog. is no, it's a, yeah, it's a frog. It's a frog. A frog he yeah. brings out. Yeah. And he's like, so the frog will be the elephant and you just have to like you, you know, just you'll imagine. have to imagine that this is all being done with an elephant. That's and, so you know, <laughs> oh, that's great. So, so if you're interested up. in any of that stuff, like the clips are really well organized in in into the movie and seeing these very sort of like lo-fi, almost like improvised one man shows that, you know, comedy routines that that he would do in front of like a national television audience that like at first like wasn't even, you know, sure how to react. It's like it's it's really incredible um, to 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 watch and he he ended up positioning that into you know doing stand up doing sort of comedy albums uh doing a bunch of sort of like short films and eventually being on the first ever season of SNL where he is basically the guy responsible for the reason that SNL does sketch short films like at all he was the one who wow. got hired to do like I think it was like six or seven or maybe even eight short films on the very first season in 1975. And he was just constantly like from L.A. So shooting these little comedy shorts and then they would play them on SNL. That's <laughs> and there's a couple cool ones in, in there, too, like the Albert Brooks, like comedy school one. And yeah, there's there, there there's some really cool stuff in there and it it got him really well known it got the attention of steven spielberg who began hanging out with him and in a bit i didn't realize until i watched the doc they actually did do like an impromptu like almost nathan fielder style prank show uh (laughs) that they just filmed for fun uh just spielberg and brooks i I have no (laughs) idea if any more of that footage is available or where that came from i gotta look that up oh my god 
Yeah. And uh, then his and then he got cast in in Taxi Driver, which was his first ever film acting role, which is mm-hmm. like, again, just like an insane, uh, uh, like an insane trajectory from like 1971 to 1975, just like hitting every variety show, starting SNL and then being, and then in a being like a Martin Scorsese, Scorsese. And he's like so yeah. fun in that movie. Uh, yeah, he is. I did because because he he's the one who has to get into the fight right with uh and and he has to like actually like be like yeah he like kick Travis De Bickle out like out of like, the restaurant yeah. or whatever yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> very uh very fun performance um but yeah so all, like all of this clout kind of gave him enough contacts to get his directorial debut off the ground real life uh, which was um you know, a uh, functionally a, a sort of quasi parody of the fly on the wall cinema verite PBS documentary series, An American Family, which was this sort of like weekly 16 millimeter snapshot of this wealthy California nuclear family called the Louds and uh, which is, you know, largely considered now to be the first example of what we now know as reality TV. And it became Mm -hmm. kind of controversial for depicting, um, you know, kind of embedding itself in the family and showing this like what should be like a picture perfect family, but like maybe the parents are like on the verge of having a divorce. Maybe the kids are going through some real stuff that the kids would be going through in, in, in the 1970s. And I think Brooks uses the quote in the beginning of the film, but he said the reason that he was so inspired was both watching that and also seeing that like real academics and anthropologists and like scientists were calling that show as significant as the invention of the drama or the novel. Um, (laughs) And this was, and, and this was before reality TV like existed in the way that we know it now. And now we kind of yeah. realize that, yeah, like maybe they were sort of right, you know, like, yeah. and now we <laughs> like have it's so Love big Island. now. Thank you. That's Robert right. Brooks. It's just like the novel. It's just like Moby Dick, um, <laughs> survivor. Um, but, uh, yeah, real, real life for anyone who hasn't seen it, it stars Brooks as this, uh, over eager, very obnoxious sort of documentary film producer. Um, as himself. basically, but yeah, functionally yeah. playing him, you know, him uh, of a, an exaggerated version of himself, maybe or maybe just himself. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe is who, this crazy and narcissistic? Who knows? Talented man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who's just like uh, who's functionally just like detached from reality, and yeah. and and both wants to win an Oscar and a Nobel Prize <laughs> by breaking the <laughs> illusion of TV entirely and self consciously embedding himself and a bunch of cameras into a dysfunctional middle-class Arizona family called the Jaegers for one year in order to uh, capture quote-unquote real life uh, and the real lives of the film crew filming that real life because we want the greatest (laughs) show of all and that is uh life which uh obviously doesn't go according to plan in a series of very dry comedic set pieces that slowly become more unhinged and destructive as brooks's producer essentially just slowly goes insane trying to (laughs) manufacture reality to his own staged vision of it in a way that you know, both satirizes the ethics of reality TV before it was even really a thing and also captures the sort of the heightened nature of show business and and how that would, you know, inherently kind of corrupt or destroy any reality that it it, it might intend to depict. Yeah. And I, I also love um, the, the way that Brooks goes about like his attitude towards it. He's very uh, 
open about kind of all these changes that are going to happen. But as things progressively get worse and more destructive, he's still very much like, no, this is this is great. This is actually kind of going according to the plan because life is spontaneous. You know, all these changes would occur. So it's 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 a film within a film within a film. It's it's totally fine. He's, you can actively see him just kind of be totally delusional uh, about what's going on in front of him. He's so pretentious about it. He's just like, no matter what, it can't, it can't be done wrong because it's just, it's what it is, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I also like that they undermine him right away um, by, you know, they introduce him as like this, this, this big well-known comedian and, and kind of a celebrity, a celebrity and all of that. But then while they're doing that and giving him his, like his accolades and all that, they're looking at a piece of paper because they forget exactly exactly what he's known for. And, and I like that. That's kind of how they introduce his, his character. But then when he, once he gets up there, he's doing a, a whole musical number and saying how like honest whole, and trustworthy like, he number. is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's so many, there's just so many um, like contrasts going on within his character right away that I, I love that you're like, I, just trust me. Things are just come along for the ride. Yeah. Yeah. That that opening town hall, like in in Phoenix, where Brooks in his Western shirt and like red ascot combo just announces (laughs) alongside the local councilman and his academic sort of like psychological consultants at the Human Behavior Institute that he's um, rented (laughs) or leased. Yes. Yes. One of one of which uh, is like, you know, writing this prestigious, dignified article for the Journal of American Psychology, played by uh, Jay Preston from 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 Body Heat, who we'll talk about because he constantly butts head heads with Brooks mm-hmm. throughout because he's kind of like meant to be, you know, sort of like the objective sort of scientific perspective, someone who's taking this as a serious sort of psychosociological study versus Brooks, who is slowly revealed to be interested in just like the fakery of show business and movie making <laughs> and stardom and celebrity and all that kind of aspect. And even though he is purporting to be like, look, I've got scientists, I got the American Journal of Psychology and we're making a movie about reality you know the most yeah. hilarious comedy the most gripping drama and suspense you know it doesn't happen on the movie screen it happens in my backyard and yours he's just like flattering the entire community they're clap you know they're clapping they're patting themselves kind of on on the back about it and he's like just be yourselves don't try to do anything special followed immediately by as Jamie just said, breaking into like an old Hollywood like chintzy big band musical routine, <laughs> yeah. like a gesture that just instantly betrays any scientific integrity of this experiment because for the actual <laughs> showman huckster uh, impulse that's driving this whole campaign, right? Yeah, it kind of reminds me of um, the the kind of like the monorail song uh, in that Simpsons episode <laughs> where he's selling it to everybody because he, he starts to change the lyrics like uh, it, it's a all about how much that they should trust him, how honest he is, but at the same time praising the audience and the and the community that he's about to try to take advantage of. Um, and so I just I love the like snake oil salesman kind of vibe that he's got going on. It's so entertaining. Yeah. And then and, and then uh, also yeah. the, the the direction that he does in the scene directly after where he's on the steps and he tells you about him wanting the Oscar and the Nobel Prize when he's walking into the the facility. He just he lingers a little longer than he should as he's going up the stairs just to kind of create this kind of awkward um, moment. And it's just another thing that constantly, you know, he's undermining again all of the things that you should 
trust in him, like that this is for science or, or whatever, something to be taken seriously. He has these extra little things in the edit that make it just almost seem amateurish, but in a funny way, like on purposely. He also just has an asshole attitude. I find about the whole thing that, <laughs> yeah. that, 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 that makes you immediately like doubt that this is like anything, but just like, like he's just so full of himself when he's getting <laughs> up there and describing the setup of, 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 you know, this is like a sort of like hosted narrated broadcast of him, you know, informing us of the ludicrous amount of money and testing that went into this <laughs> idea for for a film, for finding the perfect family that they were going to, you know, immortalize. Which they just like and, settle on because they like, don't want a family from like Wisconsin because they don't want him in Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That it's, yeah. and it's a, and all the scientists laughing is like the best part of that gag where he was just like, look, I could, I could lie to you. I could tell you that, you know, we did a million tests and we had this really complicated sort of computer factor that went into you know really decide what we were going to you know which family of these two perfect ones we eventually got to that the computer calculated was the one but it really just came down to the fact that have you spent winter in wisconsin (laughs) we're going to my buddy spielberg he likes arizona we're going to arizona and it literally all of the scientists just laugh I also um, I also love the the way that he uses technology. I mean, one obvious and great example is the cameras that they use, and they're like, there's only been four out of five successfully made because of how high tech they are and expensive they are to make. And they're these like basically they're almost these robot heads that that the cameramen put on, and it makes it it, it makes it feel just so dystopian. Like there is a robot following you around in your home and watching everything that you do. Um, but just the way that he delivers it again is so enthusiastic and like, this is a, a wonderful thing, isn't it? Um, and, and yeah, it's like a thing. giant, like robotic head that he's, and, and he also describes it as like a digital camera that it doesn't right. use film that it, 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 it just shoots on like computer chips that then all of that information gets kind of translated after the fact. But yeah, he's like, look at all these crazy tests that we're doing on these families look at all of this crazy equipment that we have and we are really going to get to you know the 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 bottom of of what life is and we're really (laughs) going to capture something truthful and something meanwhile that no one's ever really seen before meanwhile he's denying the other families by giving them like auto typed uh, letters that seem personal (laughs) like sending them off or whatever (laughs) <laughs> so I just like that it's yeah it's constantly going back and forth between that he's like he, some of the tests are hilarious too I like oh, the yeah. one where he does he does the driving test with each father in the family just to see <laughs> how safe are the cameramen gonna be driving around in the car with this dad for like a year like that's one of the <laughs> yeah. main tests that they the do just like, like drives like right through fails. all the cones <laughs> yeah <laughs> And he was like, what garage? You know, you're supposed to drive through the fake garage marked by the cones. He was like, oh, okay. I also love his line, the I can afford the luxury of honesty. When he's like, he's he's like, he's honest enough to be an asshole in the moments where he can just kind of say whatever he wants to people or direct them in a certain way. But then, of course, we know that he's not honest to his core, just built just given how he's he's kind of built this project and and everything else like that. So, again, I just love his his dialogue and his his uh, juxtaposition and his character. Yeah, he's 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 really honest, but he loves indulging in how much of like an asshole he's being about being honest, which he does through <laughs> yeah. so many of the great little <laughs> staging gags that he that he does. Like one of the one of the best ones is um, 
well, one of the first subtle ones we see and that kind of captures Brooks's whole thing is when uh, the the crew that he's hired is like setting up like his home that he's going to live in across from the family (laughs) house while the family is off on vacation for, you know, before they return home on the plane and when they're going to start the actual year of filming the entire family. And uh, they're just setting up like the games room for him. They like they you just watch them set up and build an entire ping pong table. And then he just (laughs) smugly walks in. He goes, this is great. Now, can you move it outside? (laughs) And then you just see like the look, uh, the pause on the workers faces as they and and then just a perfect cut away from them being like, you know, enough to know that that would have pissed them off, seriously, but not enough to see the conflict and make him look incredibly bad. You just have to move on from it. And then the crew just like ends up at like a travel lodge. We find out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like that's that that's really funny too. When when like the the family actually does land and they arrive at the house and there's this whole like the you know the, the the nameless crew is all there. They're all applauding them and he literally introduces them all one by one, but not by name, <laughs> by their job title. Right. He's like you know this guy's the gaffer, this guy's the ad. Here's this, and uh, he he goes through an entire line of people introducing the family to the crew they're about to be embedded with and then he immediately dismisses them all he's like so you know these are the people that aren't really needed for our specific production but the union made us hire them anyway so now they're going to go just live in the community for the next year (laughs) oh it's so funny and then because all he needs is the robotic uh, cameraman guys which which jamie you are right is like some of the best stuff is just like it's just the image of it is so funny they they automatically become you know just like they don't look like people anymore they look like walking robots or androids or something (laughs) yeah but also in like a bell-bottom jeans just like athletically running around various mundane situations like i i literally laughed every single time one of these like robot camera head guys just like wanders into frame (laughs) you know you're just you're like oh right these guys these are are the cameras yeah (laughs) and that's the thing that's what you're looking through the entire time too and what i like is that the, the a, a lot of the stuff i mean not all the time there's some moments where they're just looking right into the camera and that's kind of the effect but a lot of the time when they're just doing normal dialogue scenes you can kind of see and spot certain family members just kind of glance at the camera every once in a while but very awkwardly like they just don't know what to do and they they're like reminded that it's there um as they're having the conversation but they never speak about it um, th- there's a lot of great moments like that. Yeah, and- Charles Charles Grodin is one of my uh, like the best at doing that kind of stuff because because mm-hmm. uh, Brooks uh, cast him because I guess you saw him in a show called Candid Camera uh, in in the early 70s, which was like an early example of like a hidden camera prank show where he had to kind of like pretend to be aware, like playing to the camera and aware of it, but like as if he was you know in a realistic like authentic situation. Right. Um, so he he kind of knew that Grodin could already do that and. and and Grodin obviously should be known for most people for Elaine May's The Heartbreak Kid as well, where he is just like mm. just an, an, an incredible uh, performance that it is very Brooksian. Like that character belongs in a, in an Albert Brooks movie. So Grodin well, being involved like a, with him. He's just like oh, a perfect ahead, like actor that's like trying to like maintain like a sense of normalcy despite like not having like he's almost mm-hmm. on the verge of like a breakdown. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But some of my favorite moments with him um, and not just like when he's just talking normally and kind of subtly looking at the camera, but the moments where he's trying to convince, 
he it, it, he feels that he's trying to convince his family or himself of these facts, but he always says it to the camera. That's when he actually does say mm. it to the camera. And so you realize that he's just trying to convince the audience that he knows is watching him that his family isn't as dysfunctional as they so clearly come off as. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's, like, he's so good at, like, you know like trying to appear like he's not self-consciously paying attention to and mugging yes. for the cameras but like he obviously is through the 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 entire film and 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 it's so great because obviously you we already have the reverse side of this which is that like these cameramen are obviously intrusive and unnatural and having and generating a kind of form of artificiality and nervousness in the subjects from day one, which is something that, you know, Brooks kind of blinds himself to and which he, you know, slowly has to kind of uncover throughout the film as the scientists start to refer to it as like, you're not capturing reality, you're altering it, you're falsifying mm -hmm. it through the situation that you've put this family in. And some of the first examples we really feel of that are in Grodin's performance, like, yeah. like just the, the first scene of them, you know, uh, having that tense, awkward supper in front of the cameras and <laughs> that that interaction where Grodin as uh, the dad is uh, confronting his just like clearly miserable wife um, yeah. about her 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 IUD and he's like honey <laughs> do you do you think it's safe to be eating with your heating pad on your lap you know trying to pretend to be like caring about her but also kind of annoyed at you know that she's not displaying herself in a way that's like you know sort of attractive to the camera I guess mm -hmm. or it makes their family look strange and she's right. like you know I have cramps I'm bleeding profusely and I want to vomit on the table <laughs> and, and, it, and it's just followed by Charles Grodin's like incredibly phony laugh and I, what I can only describe <laughs> as like talk show hand gestures in yeah. front of the camera that he's doing as you know as if he's trying to be like oh like my wife is ribbing me she's doing a bit I'm really in on this and and everyone's just like, what the fuck are you doing? That's like <laughs> yeah. not like that. That That's what someone would do on, in like a comedy routine. <laughs> yeah. Another uh, great moment in that in that whole exchange is when um, she says something like, uh, like, you wanted me to get it because you didn't want any more mouths to feed. And um, and he kind of like, again, looks at the camera and he's just like, I, I didn't say that. But again, with this kind yeah. of fake <laughs> laugh, he's got this head tilt. He also, he, again, he kind of uses his hands in the same way where it feels like, yeah, there isn't, again, he's just aware of an audience. And there is that thing where it's like when he said that, which he probably did say that, uh, uh, you know, he, he never had any um, knowledge that this was going to go out to, to national television as well. So now he's just like in this in this moment of realizing how awful that truly is to the point where he's even ashamed just but he can't he can't say it you know, live. Well, yeah, instantly course. everyone goes, you know, your, your main guy who you're going to spend a year <laughs> filming, he's kind of coming off unsympathetic <laughs> right. and like, yeah. you know, his, his wife, Jeanette played by Francis Lee McCain, clearly is not having a great experience, uh, with him. And she, she obviously is not enjoying this, you know, this, this thing that they've agreed to. And she's like, you know, immediately, you know, angry about the presence of the cameras and Grodin's sort of like fame and sort of financial aspirations with their lives and want some alone time for the first weekend. And I, you know, I, I love when she gets into the car to be like, I'm, I'm leaving <laughs> for the weekend. And you just see Brooks and all the cameraman literally sprinting out of the neighboring house across the street being like, can, can we put a camera in the back of the car with you? Also, can you take the smaller car? Cause we kind of wanted the, the station wagon for like the ride to 
work that we were going to take and you know we can fit the camera guys easier in there right which is which is actively manipulating the entire reality of the situation and and not to mention you get the um the image of you know two other camera guys with the 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 camera heads just running across the street looking like the androids they do and then he has her yeah like you said switch the car so that's another thing that he's kind of you know uh, changing the reality or manipulating what is actually supposed to happen um even even interacting with her he's obviously just not capturing natural life like in 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 any capacity like groden just uncomfortably narrating he's like i guess i'm uh I'm going to make some eggs now. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then and then like, dude, you wouldn't thing. do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's after too, he, he kind of yells at his daughter, um, because she's, she's acting like, uh, his long lost lover. Cause she's, she's getting into the whole performance aspect of having the cameras on her and all of that. And they have a, a little fight. And then again, he realizes that he raised his voice, said something he probably shouldn't have looks at the camera, realizes every single thing is being recorded and then awkwardly like breaks his stove and tries to make eggs. It's, it's hilarious. Um, but then also with, with back to Albert and the, the, the driveway, him even interacting with the the wife, whether it be you know switching the car or asking to get a cameraman inside, anything like that, automatically destroys the entire uh, facade of of you know the whole reality show thing. So it's funny that he doesn't even have enough discipline at all to to get away. It's not like. Uh, there's there's a lot of time or dialogue before he just starts to try to manipulate the scene. He's 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 there right away trying to do it. Yeah, yeah. So so much of this is him not realizing how much he is like. You know, he he claims to be just like setting up sort of insects to put cameras on, mm-hmm. and then he doesn't realize how much he's kind of toying with them or how much he's actually intruding upon them and getting unnatural responses yeah. out of them just because he's just kind of just a bit of a of a cocky ass. Yeah, <laughs> including talking um, to his wife, um, it, like uh, talking to the, to, the, to the guy's wife in between like sh- scenes and stuff with them. Uh, she starts to call him because of her her marriage issues. And he even kind of has a laugh about that when he's like, he, his, his, his producer or something comes in and he's, he's just like, uh, oh, huh, she called me and not her husband. And he thinks that that's kind of funny <laughs> in a way. <laughs> like, it's, he just... Uh, I like the scene where he throws the sunglasses on too. When, oh, yeah. uh, you know, she's trying to be like, you know, the fact that you didn't make the cameras go with me speaks to, you know, a, 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 a charm and a sensitivity <laughs> that you have that my husband doesn't have. And he's just like, oh, no, I'm a cocky L.A. film <laughs> asshole. Like, don't even, you know, don't even get me started <laughs> yeah. on that. Nothing can nothing can hurt the film. This is this is where he's all about. Like, it's the film within the film within the film. And uh she she does actually start to strike up a relationship with him. You know, she embraces him. She tries to kiss him. And, you know, he's basically like, hey, no, 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 no. I'm not involved in this. Don't, you know, don't, don't get, which, which is like, you know, what he's supposed to be doing. And then yeah. later he actually tries to break that and actually. He yeah, gives into it a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, like, what if I call her and ask her out to go for dinner? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And go to the gynecologist together. (laughs) Yes, that that's a great funny um, scene. Oh, my God. That's a great scene. All of the because the the fact that she kind of invites him to come to the gynecologist because it would be kind of like, you know, it's a it's a a real moment that, you know, the Mm -hmm. the wife has to has to do this. And it's something that a a real woman would go and do. So why don't you experience this uh, with me? 
and when he goes in and he's like, okay, we're going to go in and we're going to film this appointment. And the doctor <laughs> is the one who's like, no, 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 you can't come in here and film this. He's covering his face. And I was clear. That's my favorite line that he comes well, with. Yeah, because, it, because he's like, I had a bad experience with the 60 minutes people. And he's just like, oh, the, the, dude, we're not 60 minutes. We're not here to film you. We're just here to film. We're just here to film her. Like what, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll give you cash. You know, my, my, my one camera guy is going to get an abortion. My other camera guy is going to get a checkup and <laughs> he's giving him all this cash to be like, look, let us in and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll pay you for all of this. And it builds to the punchline of when the doctor finally does go $500 is a lot of money. I might actually let you film me now. <laughs> and he, it instantly recognizes him from the stupid like tabloid you know like like mike <laughs> wallace expose that he he would have watched of him and he was like dude you're the baby broker you're that guy who got <laughs> caught like selling underground babies on auctions or something <laughs> <laughs> that's dude my uh i actually forgot that they outright said what what he did at the end because my my favorite part of that scene is when he just comes out covering his face and all you hear him say is i was cleared <laughs> and there's no there's no context to any of it or anything like that yeah. um but yeah that that scene is is fantastic just joke after joke after joke in that office it's so funny I mean, so many of the sequences of the sort of because because I, I mean, after a while, you know, a lot of this is the sort of like a deadpan comedy of sort of like middle class manners kind of gone wrong or kind of gone absurd because of the way that he sort of twisted this family unit in unnatural yeah. directions and kind of put a magnifying glass on them in a way that's making them feel awkward and strange. Yeah, they they kind of um, do everything from like montages of them not really talking to one another, kind of just going through a very boring routine. Eventually when things are going a little bit better, they have a nice montage of the family spending time um, with each other. But there is a... Oh, but there, but there are the more absurd moments uh, of the family, like when the 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 father or the doctor, I think he's a veterinarian, he accidentally kills a horse, and they have an entire scene <laughs> yeah. with that, which is a it, which is more on the absurd side. So yeah, I like. Well, I was going to say go th that's there. practically just like a sketch comedy bit, yes, right? Like yeah. like the, 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 that's where you kind of feel that aspect of Brooks coming through, where he is doing this sort of sly documentary filmmaking satire, but it is it is so bleak and so sharp and like prophetic about a certain type of kind of like single minded like showbiz like mm -hmm. sociopathy and kind of like vanity and 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 the fact that he will just like like the whole like obviously the whole actual sequence of self where he kills the horse but then also the sequence after yes when the guy's yeah, like so begging brutal. and he's like dude this would like ruin my career like this would like can you yeah. like this is a, can yeah, you not like, do I'll this? probably not show it I'm not gonna promise I won't show it but I probably won't show it yeah yeah <laughs> and the and the whole irony is like you know you understand as the show you want it to be as realistic as possible. So if mistakes were made, you want that to be in your reality show so that your whole mm -hmm. you know thesis can be put on screen. But but the thing is, is that he's the reason he is making those mistakes is because he has all the cameras on him and the pressure on him and and, yeah. and everything. Yeah. Else. So, so, so he's he's, he's like, I've manipulated. never done this before. This is like right. the yeah. one time this happened, and it happened because I was stressed because the cameras were were in there with me. And Grodin does play that whole scene perfectly where he's like oh, he, yeah. they, they actually they drive in the station wagon to work excited because they're like wow you haven't been called into like an emergency like animal surgery in like six months and here's this like bypass operation for a local shore sh like show horse it's like a huge dramatic situation yeah he'll look a like a hero 
Yeah, and 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 he's expressing confidence about it. He's like commanding the room. He's like check the dilation, pressure, and 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 the pulse. And uh, yeah, but the but but the cameras being present causes him to accidentally overdose the horse on on anesthetic. And uh, the the he the like bit forgets where, he like doses where, the first time, and then he like doses the second he, time. Oh yeah. Yeah, and, and 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 they were like, Are you sure? We already did two point five and he's like, Yes, two point five. And then they do it and they were like, So that's a total of five. And he's like, Wait, no, five, five's too much. And they were like, Well, you said two point five, and then you said do it twice. And you know, and they yeah. were like, So now, you know, now the, 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 you're just watching him go, Oh no, oh no, oh no, and then the horse just dies and you just get Brooks's deadpan narration of the operation <laughs> was done at eleven forty five. Well ahead of schedule. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that that is funny i almost forgot how much how many times he does the whole like uh kind of recontextualizing the scene through his narration but of course we know it's full of shit so it just becomes a joke that that is genius as he does that throughout i love yeah and 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 throwing like side personality bits into it as well like the owner of the horse running in and being like you know you know what's what's going on here what have you done with my horse and he's like i'm sorry sir we lost her and then let's you just see the guy it. run down the hall. Yeah, let's go find her then. <laughs> you just see Grodin just have to be like, what? <laughs> yeah, and then him just being like, uh, will you? Well, will you at least sign something to say that you won't officially release it? And he's like, well, no, we won't. We won't do that. But I, I promise, I'll think long and hard that it won't go in there. Um, and I do yeah. like that it completely like you because right then you feel you know some some sympathy for for. Um, for Grodin's character, and then they again undermine it completely by having the grandmother pass away, and at the funeral yes. he can't help but make it about his own situation in the middle of the burial, <laughs> you know. And they're so, literally doing like the final rites and 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 burial, and he, and he's just like, man, they're gonna he's they're like, gonna include this footage of me killing a horse. Like, I've never killed an animal of that size. Just like the funniest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <of> that size. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 I do kind of think it's, his comeback uh, is kind of funny, although uh, again very dickish. Where the the uh, wife is just kind of like, "Is this really the time?" And he's like, "I think this is definitely the place to have this conversation, <laughs> just on the worst possible saddest day." Um, but and yeah. you just and you just get Brooks's narration too. And then we entered one of the most depressing periods I had experienced since early childhood, <laughs> where he just had to film a grief stricken family who was just like day after day just completely lifeless and unanimated my favorite gag of which is Grodin being unable to light his barbecue with like a dozen matches and there's just <laughs> the whole family silently watching him unable to light the barbecue until he just gives up you can't be a real man <laughs> like that barbecue oh my god yeah. it's yeah and, it's so funny and then he's just trying to encourage like dialogue at a certain point he's like you know kind of <laughs> say whatever you need that's to say, one of the most monstrous scenes when, yeah. when he does go okay well to find that like they aren't being the good subjects I want be, and this is real and, and now I need the, but it, it's not f- film. It's not exciting real for my film. Like they're yeah. just being depressing and they're not talking, they're not doing anything. So that's when he tries to have a romantic dinner with, with uh, Jeanette and uh, to try and make her happy in order to fix the movie. And I think his quote is, I'm not DW Griffith. Like I'm going to get in trouble if there's no dialogue in my movie. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, and she says like she wants to make it work with the family and give him better material, but they are genuinely unhappy and they are like right. feeling like they're going to have a nervous breakdown. Like 
you're and, getting what you, know, you wanted, if anything, which is hilarious that he's again just trying to manipulate yeah. it into something else. Well, like, and, and when they life. try to genuinely tell him that this is our real feelings, we are. This is real. This is yeah. all real. And 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 he goes and and he is sitting in their fucking living room in a full clown outfit, <laughs> just obnoxiously <laughs> eating on their couch, telling them that look, you know, you guys will feel better if you just externalize what you, these feelings that you're having. And it, you know, it doesn't matter that it's going to make it more exciting for my camera as well. I just want what's best for you guys. You know, yeah. you have to understand in, in a full clown outfit, like he's so ridiculous. <laughs> and and again too, he um, contradicts himself in this, It like just moment after moment where he says something like, uh, it's like he's trying to calm them down. So he's like, so there's been a couple of deaths. So what? That kind of thing, just kind of brushing <laughs> it to the side. And then they start to say like how upset they've been and, and you know, how they've been, they've been crying and, 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 and all of that. And he's like, oh, I cried too just last night. And they're like, well, what'd you cry about? And he's like, I, I don't remember. Um, and it's just like how detached he is. It's like he's, he's again, it kind of goes through that him living vicariously through them a little bit where he feels so detached from like real, a real human interaction um, that at one point maybe he did authentically cry that night, but he just doesn't even really understand why. <laughs> he just has no understanding of what it means to be kind of human. Uh, and it's, it's, it's very funny to watch. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that's when it starts to actually become a problem with like the actual film crew. Like he starts having meetings with the execs and actually viewing the, 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 the footage. I do love the Hollywood money guy who just the entire time is like, doesn't understand his like, like, nobody wants you know, to the, watch this. You're making the news. Yeah. He's like, can we get a Nichols? Can we get a Redford involved? Where the hell is Paul Newman? You know, what's he up to these days? And he was like, he doesn't understand the movie that they're making at all. And, um, the, like, uh, the scientists and, and, don't like it. Like Ted, clary like hates it yes yeah. <laughs> yeah like the scientists are expressing concern like all the concerns that we've been bringing up that they they are changing this family for the worse mm-hmm. by their filming habits and and like road is like literally he, like changing the way he like holds a coffee cup yes yeah. <laughs> and and i like too that with that they're still doing these kind of like ridiculous tests where they're you know trying to measure if it was hot enough to actually change hands and that's the reason he's changing hands not because they're <laughs> manipulating his brain structure or something like that it just gets so <laughs> strange the way that they're going about the experiments well and and, and brooks has such a good like a like a like a, a sense of like wit and and wordplay to him as well i like mm-hmm. the bit when uh, uh cleary played by jay preston who's like the again the sort of dignified scientist who actually took this experiment at face value and wanted to you know actually was interested in artistically the you know the sort of thesis of what brooks pitched but now sees that that's not actually what he was interested in 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 all of his actual methodology and he says look we need to get them out of the house allow this family time to you know have some privacy and where so that they aren't calculating every little inch of their face and their reaction and things that Mm -hmm. they do you know so that they don't wake up and just feel like they're on a movie set all the time you know we're talking about people not wallpaper and brooks just goes did you know you spend 80 percent of your life looking at wallpaper you know <laughs> i brought that wallpaper in from los angeles you know like do you understand you know and he's like that's not what i'm talking about he's like <laughs> i'm talking about like i'm fundamentally opposed to the like the unethical approach to this experiment and uh 
And Brooks just has like no concept of what he's talking about because the yeah. guy was only ever brought on as like window dressing for look how serious my project is. And the fact that he actually has to listen to this guy kind of pisses him off. And he's just like, <laughs> you know, and he's like, but we're kind of alike. That's why we get into these debates. You know, I think you'd be surprised how much alike we are. Just J.A. Preston's delivery of I'd be more than surprised. I'd be suicidal. You know? <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. And, then, and then he just quits. It feels like and- very like proto like like Ricky Gervais a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because, uh, well, like this moment especially, because after he uh, he quits, Albert kind of, you know, visibly gets upset a little bit that someone that someone's quit on him. And it seems very authentic at first, but then once he sees the camera, he starts to just articulate his feelings to the camera and express them that way so that it's still part of the performance and the entertainment and the show that he's putting on. Um, and it, yeah, it's just a, a, another thing where he, he almost, he almost reaches it a little bit of like authentic emotion and then just has to turn it into his show. Yeah. Brooks being like, I was upset by Dr. Cleary's sudden departure, <laughs> yes. but it turned out to be a blessing. And you know, you know, now we didn't have the pressure of the American journal that was too much on everyone. And that was what was harming the project. And he says, and, you know, this and, right and, after he leaves in the same shot, like it's not like a, a narration after, and it's going over some next scene or something. It's as the doctor is leaving the room, he's saying these things. He's like, yeah, it was it was the scientists that were holding this experiment back. The family's coming out of their shell. And he's like, and by the middle of February, my filmmaking dream had come true. He had a happy family, the beautiful city. And as he puts it, the chance to show the French what a montage is all about. And he literally (laughs) just a great slow motion montage of like the family going to the mall, the zoo, playing board (laughs) games, going bowling, eating ice cream, just enjoying life (laughs) in a very lyrical sort of slow motion images of this. just this like perfect um, family, one of which is a shot of them like looking at like tortoises in an enclosure, replicating how like we're watching them a little bit as 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 well as sort of these, you know, just like these these animals one of my favorites Um, is the double bike and on the back there's someone with the camera on their head (laughs) that one just made me laugh so hard (laughs) yeah because because even as much as he thinks he's capturing it there's just there's something that's so wrong about about this whole thing and and uh it it does end up kind of blowing up in his face when Cleary writes writes essentially writes a book using all of his notes from the brooks method and uh and, you know, it does an expose on what it is that they're doing. And he literally uses the words mind control and psychological, <laughs> psychological rape. rape. <laughs> um, yep. And that they are uh, prisoners of war under the thumb of a dangerous, like, paranoid weirdo, essentially. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One of my uh, favorites is when the newscaster shows up to the family house. Great to, scene. And, and one of the first <laughs> things they say is like, uh, hey, could we could we get in there and start filming you guys? And, and, and Grodin just looks at the camera and he's like, we're already doing that. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, how many? Well, yeah, and, and, and one of my favorite bits is the so the, they start getting hounded by, like, news crews as, like, you know, sort of, like, paparazzi just attacking the family regularly. Mm-hmm. And um, But the, the, the one where the reporter comes into their house and he basically goes, like, look, you know, you guys are filming the Jaeger family having breakfast. It's part of your film. Totally understand. Shoot that scene. But when you're done, 
done shooting that scene. Could you restage it and have them eat breakfast again so we can film your TV crew, like, filming the family? And, like, we could get in there? And he was just like, you're trespassing on a movie set. He's like, this is a news story. He's like, no, it's a movie, and it's copyrighted. He's like, how can you copyright life? You know, he's getting into, like, a almost getting into, like, a fist fight with a news broadcaster for having the same instincts that he does yeah, of, you know, you know, trying to get in on the story and be part of the project and get his camera in his face and you know it immediately upsets him and changes his behavior to have a camera shoved in his face and my my favorite uh my, my favorite part of this whole thing is just him running over in his house coat in a panic just him being in the house coat the whole time is just showing like just how dysfunctional this project has gotten to the point and kind of his just it shows that he's in a desperate situation that he had to run over and try to again further manipulate the whole scene so that things happen the way that he wants them to but he's just in such a he, he's just scramble brained at this at this point kind of um, and another part that I love is as he's in the house coat just screaming at these guys over and over again as as they leave in their car. Um, after everything calms down, he's just kind of like, all right, I'm going to, uh, have a good breakfast. I'm going to go take a shower and then just walks over to his <laughs> house again, all calm as if none of that just happened in, in the front yard. It's, it's such a great scene. One well, and, and, and it's so clear how just like he is kind of disintegrating as like a person, as his project right. is, you know, slowly falling apart at the same time as him because you know the human behavior institute and the movie producers are at the point where they're like yeah we're gonna shut this experiment down you know like you know our reputations are being harmed by all of these stories and all of these news broadcasts that are saying that you're an insane man who is <laughs> torturing a nice american family um and and uh and they're, you know, they're like telling him that they're like we this is ruining our lives we would like to stop <laughs> Well, that's what's funny, too, is that, you know, all of the the money people are like, well, you know, let's consider the family for for a, a moment like they are close to complete personality disintegration. Um, <laughs> and and, uh, you know, he's immediately like, you know, this is all bullshit. We don't need you. Whatever. Like the family kind of like they, they 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 disagree with you. And he, he's also yelling about like Mickey Mouse, like urine cup tests, which is just a funny line to be yelling about. Yeah. Um, because they're doing all these tests to try and find out how the family is doing. And they're just they're finding this out through their pee. And uh, <laughs> what's that line he has, too, about how because he, he Brooks really emphasizes the fact that they're doing cup tests. And he was just like. You know, uh, I'll tell you something about you people. You're great with cups, but, you know, you don't have balls. And I think if you ask any magician, he'll tell you that cups without balls doesn't mean jack shit. <laughs> That's what he says. Um, but uh, but yeah, the family at one point does come in and it's just like this is this is too much. The movie producer is like, ha does have like the line of the movie where he's like, you know, you started out with this artsy craftsy reality <laughs> crap. And what did you end up with? The news, the, fact <laughs> the goddamn news and people get that for free. And he's like, you know, they're going to, they're going to hire a babysitter and, you know, go all the way downtown and go to the box office and like, give me a ticket to the news. He's like, come on, man. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? And also you're killing this family and they all agree. And they're like, our kids are, afraid to go to school and brooks's response to that being like that's normal, that's normal. <laughs> <laughs> so good oh it's so funny and then he started and then he starts to get kind of 
I mean, you know, we've seen him throughout the film just in, in full context. So we know that he's being kind of mean in general. But this is where he starts to get kind of actively spiteful, where he's he's like, uh, you guys won't be able to afford the braces that your daughter's going to need. She's going to have elephant teeth, like all of that. She, he really starts to dig into the the issues, specifically, I guess, financially that they're that they're dealing with. Um, and that will lead yeah, he's to trying to weaponize life. like financial anxiety and desperation. Yeah. In, in yeah. the family. To and be like, as, you 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 need to get paid for participating and they just go what well they've been through enough torture we'll just pay them what we owe them you <laughs> yeah, know and exactly. get out and then that ruins his whole thing so then he's like literally after berating them and threatening them now he's like begging and on the ground being like please you know yeah and <laughs> keep it's so, doing this is well, all i have <laughs> and one of the my favorite lines and it's so simple but given just everything we've seen makes it so funny when he's having this breakdown he's like let's just think about me for one second <laughs> that kind of <laughs> <laughs> given everything we've seen, that is such a funny fucking line. Um, but yeah, this is kind of where he starts to, f it, it's hard to say whether or not he's like just desperate for the, for the, the show to, to be completed or if he kind of is in this breakdown, hinting a little bit that some humanity is coming out and that he actually has kind of vicariously lived through them a tiny bit. Um, but a lot of it seems to be just based on the, manipulation and the fact that things aren't going his way. That's what it seems to be more selfishness than anything. Well, he, he was like, he had a vision of what reality would look like, uh, underneath his, his documentary camera. And when he tried to force it, it didn't work. And mm -hmm. then he's like, well, now this is breaking my entire conception of reality and he's like oh then he starts to realize maybe his entire conception of reality came from movies and came from <laughs> right. these fake things that he doesn't you know and he was like you know so he really does start to have like it literally like breaks his brain in 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 front of us and it's there's this yeah, great cross-cutting between the family signing their liability disclaimers where they were like you know were you guys ever coerced did you feel like your <laughs> life was disrupted by this experiment you know do you plan on suing us and they're answering all of these questions where they're basically, and the, my favorite one is the, do you think you have benefited from this experience at all? It just grows. <laughs> um, and, and McCain just both being like, well, we're going to need to think about that one for a second. Um, and, and, and this is all cross cut with Brooks, just like going unhinged the ranting. Camera into the camera and I do love all of the failed attempts by the camera guy to be like oh no no man no you're a good guy <laughs> yeah. you know this this, this is a great movie man you know and he's genius. like no I'm a jerk I ruined their life you know I like how he <laughs> I'm sets, a failure I like how he sets that up in the framing too that at first you see the cameraman actually with the camera on his head and kind of talking to him as if he's trying to calm him down. And then it slowly transitions into him just looking into that camera and we get the perspective of him just yelling at us as an audience member while he's going through this like self-therapy session, I guess a little bit with the camera guy trying his best to help him. Um, but I, yeah, that, I thought that that transition was, was great. And, uh, and he's got some really, uh, good lines in here. Like I love him just actively saying, I have no right to make movies. I shouldn't be allowed to do this to, to the audience. And then another one, which is a, a crude one, but I do like it is when he's like, and so it ended eight months early, like an abortion. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and, oh yeah, he says that, but then, but, but it's funny because it's it, it like the contradiction of it and the way that like line to line, mm -hmm. you can see him swaying back and forth on the argument because when right, he originally right. says that he's like, he's trying 
trying to argue it's actually it is a good movie. There's animals, there's kids, sunny days, you know. So it ended eight months early. It that and that what is what makes him think that it's like an abortion. And then he <laughs> yeah. goes, "Oh, I'm making an abortion." <laughs> oh, <laughs> he, he follows that metaphor to its logical conclusion, and then he's like, "Oh no!" And I you know, and now, and now you know, I was I was gonna have a year. I was gonna end on New Year's, and everyone was gonna leave the theater smiling and going home thinking about new beginnings. And and now there's no ending, and you know, and 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 audiences don't like real; they like fake. They crave fake. Reality sucks. And then so that he starts literally trying to list out what are the biggest movies. How do I make this movie still a hit? Star Wars, Jaws, Gone with the Wind. He's trying to figure <laughs> out how he can make his movie more like these movies, which he eventually does by recreating the ending of Gone with the Wind <laughs> by burning like down, <laughs> literally burning down the Jaeger family home like it's the city of, of, of Atlanta and just like completely detaching himself from reality. Um, and <laughs> literally it's, saying it's, I'm it's, mentally it, ill. <laughs> just it's it's losing it's an it. incredible piece of filmmaking as the like yeah. romantic rousing music like starts to swell <laughs> as there's just an insane Albert Brooks lighting a family's house on fire, nearly killing everyone inside <laughs> and, and everyone is screaming and he's going, it's beautiful. It's the greatest ending anyone has ever seen. <laughs> Human pathos tragedy. <laughs> and it's real. He's like freaking out. Like and him watching decla- in a clown suit, just a perfect little addition there. <laughs> I, I also love the fact that uh, the camera guy, his entire like, you know, his helmet gets like completely uh, filled up with smoke and he can't <laughs> see and he's coughing. He's nearly killing the camera guy and he literally picks him up like he's saving him like a cat from like a burning building. And and, and the cameras, the guy is like, I can't even capture this. I can't even focus the camera right now because you're like choking me to death with the, with the smoke. <laughs> Oh my and god, man! Yeah, burns and then that just, fucking house the down. The family and him and the crew just watch the house burn, and then they have hear this. the sirens coming from the distance. Yeah, probably coming to arrest this man who just tried to kill everyone. As he laughs and and enjoys his masterwork. Yeah, and then and then they have a funny little crawl too, where it's like they rebuilt the house uh, with. A tennis court like a to tennis make court. up for what happened, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a great detail is like um, it tells the historians to call this number if they need documentation to know whether or not this was <laughs> like an actual good representation of humanity and and life or something like that. It's and apparently it's like very Clear- Dr. Clary like got ill. <laughs> Yeah, they, they, yep. they also say, yep. yeah, Dr. Cleary got mysteriously sick and no one bought his book because he's a loser, by the way. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and this was written by Albert Brooks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and meanwhile, historians are still arguing over whether this film actually did uh, do any benefit for the capturing of reality. And if you want to write that article, call us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, so God. It's, it's it's, it's so good. It's like Brooks is so good at like like skewering himself, but also indulging in clearly all of the things that he's actually interested in, and also you know just fitting a great visual gag in there when he wants to. You know, like yeah. it's just the, the 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 whole thing is 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 uh, wonderful. And if we're pivoting towards the reductive rating round, this one is honestly kind of close to the five for me. It's probably it's I'm gonna go nice. with the Jamie four for now. It's my second watch. Uh, I watched it. I actually I can't remember if I watched this this year or maybe just last year for the first time, but I'm. 
it, it having gone through more of the brooks i i am kind of coming around to this one in modern romance probably being my two favorites that i've seen so far mm. and uh and i and i i i did kind of think that like you know uh, just speaking on how ahead of his time he kind of was, uh, it makes me almost want to five this one because it's it's mm-hmm. like it's so innovative in terms of doing this like meta sort of postmodern sort of like cringe comic sensibility um, that that he spent a decade honing in the comedy clubs and the variety shows, um, but and but but managing to fit that into a debut feature that is just as like well conceived and controlled as this movie is, you know, and, and, and while still leaving room for like that awkward spontaneity and the crazy interactions, the absurd sort of conceptual staging of the physical gags, like all of the robot head cameraman, just intrusively and aesthetically running into each situation and frame is just like so wonderful. Um, and yeah. And, and, and again, the, how egoless he is willing to be on screen uh, in, in the sense that he's willing to play a completely egotistical character. That's um, supposed to that be himself. Is like, yeah, that is like just kind of self-obsessed and so kind of unlikable and, you know, just becoming slowly untethered and, and unhinged trying to manufacture reality in a very sort of like stage-like fashion, you know, including ha- opening on a musical number and ending ending on a fiery climax that have gone with the wind. It's just, you know, it's <laughs> it's it's a really crazy um uh idea for a movie and the fact that he is prophetically like satirizing reality TV and the ethics of it and, you know, the the sort of heightened vein sociopathic nature of 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 show business uh, you know, b- before the actual things existed that people would have these conversations about, you know, Mm. he, it was just, he definitely, you know, he, he envisioned things that, you know, would eventually, uh, we would actually see kind of unfold. And he did it in a very, very funny, um, way and and he's just a kind of naturally gifted filmmaker there's a lot of stuff i I could see i i know at the time people kind of critiqued this one for being a little they felt kind of repetitive um apparently yeah ebert didn't like this one at all he he famously found it like um very one note in terms of that he kind of had one really great idea for a movie and he he felt that he kind of exhausted it after 10 minutes uh personally i found that he kind of kept developing it quite well honestly he found lots of different little sketches um to do even if you could argue that like the gynecologist scene and the horse scene are kind of like a variation on each other those sequences are a total blast and have very different visual gags and setups and punchlines to them that i just absolutely enjoy and and also to have you know such a bleak framework for them because it's not just like the gag happens it's also like Grodin groveling to be like please don't fucking put that in the movie like it's <laughs> yeah. so horrible and and for him to sit there in the awfulness of being like look I staged this great gag and now look how terrible of a human being I was in order to stage that great gag like it's just he like this was kind of the level of thinking that 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 Brooks was on and the last thing I wanted to share which will kind of lead us into the next one was that um uh one of the things stories he shared on the Marin podcast that's kind of speaks to his sensibility is that apparently when he went on the Dean Martin show as uh, uh, to do one of his sketches, the producer for the Dean Martin show looked at a couple of his bits that he was going to bring on for like a, a summer season that he was on. 
And he literally watched all of his bits, like his ventriloquist dummy bit and a couple other ones. And he was like, look, you know, you're you're up here as in like you're you're doing these very highbrow meta, you know, sort of concepts for for comedy routines. And the audience they're you know, they're a little bit down here, you know, like they're (laughs) they're not going to understand what it is that that you're doing and why it's funny. And, um, he's like, I, I get it. I think it's funny. Um, but he's like, you're going to have a lot of trouble if this is what you find funny and what you think is going to sell you, get you success and sell movie tickets. And, uh, Brooks, apparently his only response was, this is all that I think is funny. I don't think anything else is funny. This is, and so that's why I do it. And the, and the fact that this movie is and exactly what it wants to be. And yes, it's uncomfortable and yes, it's bleak and maybe sometimes more than it even is funny. Um, you know, the fact that he got divisive responses because it's just truly who he was as a person and a comedian, I think speaks to its, uh, good qualities and is not something, you know, not a flaw in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I'm, uh, I'm also going to give it a four for now. Um, but I just need to dive into more Albert Brooks. This is, I mean, fantastic. I, I instantly was thinking of just as the modern comparisons, like like Nathan Fielder, which I'm a huge mm. fan of. Love Nathan for you. Love the rehearsal. Just, so to see something like that being done 40, 50 years ago um, is is pretty incredible. Albert Brooks was definitely ahead of his time with this stuff. And, and just the commentary on reality television in general, all of it is still so relevant uh, uh, today. It's kind of insane that, that this has become something that's kind of timeless in a way. So uh, I think that's very, very impressive. And I just, I love his willingness, like you said, to be uh, kind of the, the bad guy the whole time, especially for a directorial debut um, I think that that's really ballsy. Um, and to do something meta right away is also pretty cool and and kind yeah, of to uh, introduce yourself, you know, yeah, that way. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It, like I'm just I'm just gonna deconstruct. That is who I am. Um, so I think that that's really cool. And uh, I he does have a lot of commentary, just a variety of it, while still staying true to this kind of you know egotistical character. Like he's going between family and and and, and the industry itself. Um, um, uh, like his, 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 uh, relationship to him as an artist, the performance, the relationship to the audience, um, the kind of stuff with the relationship to the audience reminds me a little and performance, I guess, reminds me a little bit too of, uh, of, uh, Bo Burnham. Um, Mm. he's pretty constantly talking about the breakdown of what performance is and, and kind of the illusion from the audience to the actual act itself. Um, so I saw a little bit of that too, which was cool. But uh, yeah, if you want to see him do a full musical act at a piano where he plays multiple characters on a piano, there's a great clip of Albert Brooks uh, trying to generate a new national anthem for America. Oh, that's awesome. He does it as a series of people volunteering for what their version of the national anthem would be. So he just plays like 10 characters in a row, like stepping up to a microphone and doing their new national oh, cool. anthem. I didn't know he also did. In various genres. And, I didn't yeah, know he also did He actually did does do stuff. like a musical themed comedy like that as well. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I just <laughs> figured with the, with the first guy, at the at the kind of council meeting that they have in the beginning of this one that it might have just been a one-off but that's that's awesome um but yeah i think this is this is great very funny uh it's crazy that it it made like no money it looks like and did get kind of trashed but this was i think ahead of its time so yeah four out of five for now yeah for you michael Uh, yeah i agree with both of you i think it's a four out of five uh i think it's very funny i think it's very comfortable i think it's very ahead of its time i think it sets up like a very early 
thesis statement that like we're all like kind of under a lens and performing and badly under it, which I think is like very <laughs> interesting and fun. Uh, yeah, I think it's great. Real life. Check it out if you haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is going to wrap it up for um, for real life here. And we're going to be right back. And we're going to be talking about defending your life uh, from 1991. Uh, just a, a, a decade and a bit later. Stick around. By Albert Brooks. So I'm on trial for being afraid. Well, first of all, I don't like to call it a trial. Second of all, yes. If you see one movie before you die. I love you. This is damn exciting stuff. See, defending your life. Most people love it. Some it makes nauseous. <laughs> Don't worry about it. All right, we are back and we are talking Defending Your Life, the 1991 American uh, fantasy romantic comedy film written and directed by Albert Brooks uh, and starring Brooks alongside uh, Meryl Streep, Rip Torn, and Lee Grant. Um, This obviously came out um, 12 years after real life and um, 12 years in Brooks's film career that uh, saw a lot of change for him. Mm-hmm. Um, he made a lot of films and, 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 you know, there's, we're going to get into the specifics on how different this is from real life, but you can kind of follow the trajectory of it through his films as he became a little bit more comfortable with, um, straight up narrative films, um, and was trying to maybe make some films that were more pleasing to some audiences. I wouldn't say that was the case with modern romance, um, <laughs> which is, uh, still probably my favorite one that I've seen, but is still just spectacularly offbeat and like, yeah, it's relentlessly like so anxious. It's, it's horrifying to, it's like an anti-rom-com. Like it yeah. is, it is like uh, Brooks as like a jealous asshole film editor who breaks up with his girlfriend. And it's just one of the most horrifying. It's like everyone's worst of, version of themselves in like a relationship. It's it's yeah. It's like it's like the, the rom com sort of like format of, of like a and and it's like the character envisions himself as like the lead in a romantic comedy film, but he's just the worst person. Um, and it's 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 a really horrifying. My my what's still my favorite scene in that movie um, is uh, when he actually does sit her down at the diner and tries to explain to her that he's breaking up with her. And Brooks just goes, you know, you've heard of a no win situation, haven't you? And she goes, <laughs> no. He's like, no. And 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 he's briefly sidetracked and just astonished. <laughs> in the middle of breaking up with her that she doesn't know what a no win situation is. And you can see on his face how distracted he is by the fact that he thinks she's kind of stupid. He goes, you've never heard of a no win situation, Vietnam, this, you know, they're around, you know, I think we're in one, you know, like <laughs> Vietnam. And this. That's great. It's just, yeah. My relationship is exactly like Vietnam. It's a wonderful. Um, <laughs> But and 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 he also did Lost in America, which I, from what I understand, it's his yuppie sort of like parody of of Easy Rider. But I, which I've not seen. But Michael, I know that you're a big fan of that one. Yeah, right? it's really funny. It's like a it's like a parody of like Reagan America. Yeah, and and, and in that one, he's an ad executive too. And it, yeah, but it's like a road movie. Like a weird runner. Yeah, he, it's like him and his like wife decide to like go off like off the grid basically to like try to find themselves, but it goes horribly wrong. <laughs> Yeah, all, all of these movies are kind of connected by this uh, a, a, a little bit. But the, the big moment for him was when he actually he got Oscar nominated for his supporting turn in James L. Brooks's broadcast news in mm. uh, 1987, which right. was the um, 
awkward sort of like love triangle rom-com between him and Holly Hunter and William Hurt, which was uh, sort of set to the backdrop of um, TV journalism's transition from kind of like uh, to kind of like stylish reality entertainment versus the sort of like substantive reporting. And that's kind of the, some the push and pull of the, you know, the, the industry changing, the characters changing, their lives changing. Um, there's a great sequence in that though, that I think single-handedly should have gotten, uh, him the Oscar, which was the scene where he just like sweats profusely <laughs> throughout the entire anchor broadcast session, um, which is a scene that like he came up with, which was like William Hurt is like the handsome anchor everyone wants to be. And, and he's like the nerdy one who gets a sh- one shot to be on it. And he literally just like sweats buckets. It's it's <laughs> it's. it's and he's, it's a horrible experience for him. It's great. Um, but uh, but Jonathan Rosenbaum, I think, really summed up his career well to this point and in between these two films, which which uh, he did by saying that for all of their obvious and fascinating differences, that all four of these Brooks uh, features from real life to defending your life were contemporary satires uh, and as well as philosophical parables and realistic comedies um, about very specific type of like self-defeating, self-conscious behavior of like an image-obsessed, like kind of like middle-class American American guy. Um, and I think that's true across all of these because in the first two he plays filmmakers, in these last two he specifically plays like like advertising executives and and ad makers. Um, but it, what's interesting is that between in this entire stretch of films, I. I think especially post broadcast news um it seems like brooks really just found himself quite comfortable in the kind of pleasing and enjoyable like feel good romantic comedy realm mm-hmm. you know and 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 so so i think defending your life really comes out of that mm-hmm. uh, and also was inspired as he said by you know his his father um uh, passed away which had him kind of thinking about you know a, a sort of secular afterlife and uh mm-hmm. he really yeah. liked the the Ernest uh, Lubitsch film heaven can wait from 1943 which kind of has a little bit of a similar sort of afterlife concept um and he'd kind of i think wanted to see if he could push the traditional formula of the, these kind of feel good movies and still do his absurdist high concept sort of satirical, uh, elements that he likes to put in and push it to this like full on fantasy direction with like this idea of like an abstract non-religious corporate review board (laughs) style vision of what a (laughs) philosophical, uh, afterlife, um, looks like uh which is you know pretty pretty incredible as we'll get into just like some of the visual choices he makes in the film and whatnot yeah yeah the the, yeah when i was um looking it up and and kind of got the premise of it and all of that and and realized that it had fantasy attached to it i i wasn't really expecting to spend a lot of time in like a bunch of corporate offices and and hotels and and everything like that it's it's by the way i'm saying that i love this movie i thought it was fantastic but um i i think it's very funny that he makes the fantasy element of it so cold and dry and just just office spaces uh uh, I think that it, I think that that's amazing. There's no like paintings on the walls. You know what I mean? It's just desks and chairs. Yeah. And well, it, it's in, like a in, like in the Anaheim resort I, or something. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> in, in, in the doc, he basically says that this was born from the fact of that. He just, he always thought like the sort of traditional visions of heaven were just so tacky. 
He's mm-hmm. like the idea of sort of like clouds and harps and, you know, he, 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 so he had an idea for a vision of an afterlife that was just like a bit more visually surreal, but still kind of mundane and bureaucratic like life can be because that's yeah. kind of like, you know, he, he's like, I still wanted it to feel like the Kafka-esque machinery of, you know, uh, that, 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 that the universe can often feel like. And so, and, but obviously also put that into a little bit more of a feel good premise of like, what if a character in this case, a, uh, advertising executive by the name of Daniel Miller played by Albert Brooks, um, who, you know, suddenly dies and finds himself in the afterlife and, you know, and in, in this place where, you know, you kind of have to prove that, you know, you, you are, a, you know, are, you are a smart and courageous and you know worthy person to continue into the next form of existence but you know brooks is famous for playing these you know self-defeating self-doubting kind of Mm -hmm. characters so it's obviously a struggle for him and also uh, not a complete failure Uh, a lot of the time he does have i guess i this is only the the second film that i've seen from him now but it, it seems um that he still has like some hope, like in the scene where he's learning about everything, they do have that moment where he's like, oh my God, I've been back 20 times. Like how awful am I at this? And they're like, well, don't worry. There are people that have been back, you know, hundreds of times. So you're kind of, <laughs> you're kind of in the middle. Like, so he kind of has well, this. Well, I, but but I, I do love that Rip Torn's delivery of that though. It's like, you wouldn't want to meet those guys though. Very true. Very true. Um, yeah. yeah. But, but no, he, he is a, he is a character. There's hope for him. And the right. whole point of this movie uh, unlike some other albert brooks characters where again we talked about the last one where he went so fucking crazy that he basically almost killed everyone by lighting the house on fire because he was (laughs) just so detached from reality you know he gives this character he's he's kinder to this character he's like this guy can look at his mistakes he can reflect on them uh maybe he can even change his ways and he can conquer his fears and anxieties and that 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 cause him to maybe pass up these things that these opportunities and these you know maybe love you know all these various things that he's maybe not experiencing that that he should be in it and and he does it in a deliberately less like postmodern confrontational and off-putting sensibility um you know because mm-hmm. but but he but in my opinion he still does it quite well there, there's still great purpose here there's a lot of great filmmaking it is still sharp and and satirical it just felt like you know it has a little bit more of a warmer sort of gentler attitude about many of you know the same yeah. ideas i think yeah. even the, the the kind of system that he set up here for the afterlife is a lot more uh warm than you would traditionally get i mean if you're just going to the like like catholic or whatever it's kind of the it's the like judgment. A, it's like a buddhist like bureaucracy basically <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, you, yeah you get a chance yeah, they're, to they're, like overcome these things that you've been dealing with and if you can you can move on but if not then I, you go back one more time <laughs> right and there's this, this yeah i was it, gonna say at, at least you get another shot right you yeah know, like, yeah <laughs> there's a yeah there's the i mean they outright say it's not even an implication where they you you get uh, chance after chance, really, to to try to prove yourself. I mean, it seems like you know there are people that fail at it, but just that that opportunity to do so seems to be a little yeah. bit more hopeful than some of the other religious afterlifes that I've I've heard about, where it's just basically like you're either going up there, or you're going down there, and you don't get any you well, know any retribution. Well, even like like, like Rip Torn's like defender character is like a good example. Like you can like reframe these things in our life, where like it it can be positive if you wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. 
No, it, it, well, and 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 honestly, he's not like as bad of like a like a character who like you really feel right off the start like needs to even be like taught a like a you know he's yeah. not like an yeah. evil character that no. needs to be yeah. taught a lesson like 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 Christmas Carol style or if something. Anything, yeah. you know? A lot of the time, like, they're judging him in the sense that he could just be a better person, like not that he's a yeah. bad person yeah. in general, but just that mm. he he himself could like have self improvement. It's it they, a lot of the things are him. You know, it's based on this whole idea of like fear is the thing that causes yeah. people to not go f- uh, through certain things that they wanted to do in life or wh- whatever it, it, it is. Yeah, and, and results in them being lonely because yeah. it, it, it yeah. opens with him as like this, you know, he's this, you know, you know, fairly wealthy advertising executive and he's spending his 39th birthday proudly alone. He's like, you were born alone. You should celebrate it. You should celebrate, you know, aloneness. That's what birthdays are for. So he's just buying himself a new BMW on his birthday and then driving around with his truck. (laughs) Yeah. With his new CD player blasting Barbara Streisand's version of the West side story. And then, you know, fumbling with CDs in his new car, he literally drives headfirst into a bus. When he, where he is welcomed into the afterlife uh, known as Judgment City, which is this, uh, as as we've been describing, uh, a form of like a glossy plastic like country club purgatory where <laughs> yeah. it's literally designed to be like bright, bland office like space Epcot slash or hospital <laughs> slash yeah, resort Epcot, slash yeah. amusement yeah. park. The, 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 the production design by Ida Random who did a uh, body double in the war of the roses is just fantastic. And the mix of the city locations and the matte painting. I think it's like shot to, like know, century city based on like all the locations that are in it. <laughs> Yes. One of my favorite details is when he, you know, you see him go head on into the into the bus and then initially it just kind of opens up this in this white hallway where he's in a he's in like a hospital gown in the in the wheelchair. So it's kind of initially your brain goes, "Okay, maybe this is the aftermath." Um of, of course if you haven't read the synopsis or anything like that, but um, but then as the, the scene expands, you kind of see like the rows of people in this endless hallway as, as they're just going towards whatever they're going towards. Yeah, it turns almost to like Jacques Tati, like yeah. playtime or something all of a sudden where you're like, oh, here's like this like crazy, like, uh, like, like mousetrap constructed looking, <laughs> right. like, <laughs> like just, you know, it's, it's, it's almost, it's almost like you're looking at like a, like a top down, like Busby Berkeley musical or something where all of these, uh, you know, uh, this vision of a still mundane afterlife of just like a bunch of guys in gowns in wheelchairs and what looks like a hospital, but then they're being like taken out to what is functionally. And I think was literally the universal studio tour trams that they repurposed (laughs) uh, to be the, uh, how they, how they drive around the actual place. And, and, and it is interesting too, that he kind of, part of what's you know there there's an element to this where you're just like this is this is a very specific kind of clean afterlife for a very specific kind of person and it's yeah. so funny how they bake that into the premise by being like yeah this is specifically the uh, purgatory for white upper middle class <laughs> Americans uh, and, and all the things that they find pleasing and f- familiar, which is why this has been ingeniously modeled, you know, to make them comfortable. But it still feels kind of like dreamlike and absurd at, at the same time when he's passing by various billboards for like the Judgment City nightclubs and steakhouses <laughs> and bowling alleys and mini malls. And like, you know, the, the, everything is here. All the things you would like about Earth. But like 
like it's just it's it's developed here for like this uh, this perfect weathered purgatory where you know the, 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 even on the all the talk shows and game shows are like themed to be specific to Judgment City and everything like that. Like they put a lot of thought into conceive like conceiving the world building. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and the world building. Um, that they have kind of the the jokes built into that world, like when he's going through the television. And one one of them I thought that was really funny is when the girl is being interviewed about like having sex with Ben. I Frank. fucked like, Benjamin ben Franklin. Franklin. Yeah, he's like he was fat. <laughs> that was it. Like, that's, that's, the, that's just the line. There's some really good inner world jokes that they do um, after they've built this kind of uh, honestly like very. Um, you know, it'd be nice. I do like the idea of just eating whatever the hell I want for as long as I want. And, and you, you <laughs> yeah, know, all the restaurants prepare sick. food instantly and but you everything just, is very you just order it and you can just eat whatever you want. Yeah. No gaining weight, no paying money. Yeah. But wow. besides that, it feels like you're just, it's like, it's like when you go to Vegas and you see all the old people just mindlessly hitting the slot machine. You know what I mean? A lot of it, <laughs> a lot of it feels like that while you're in this kind of purgatory. It's, it's it, it, really, I think the happiness he finds is when he eventually meets like, you know, Meryl Streep's character. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. Jamie, you're telling me you wouldn't golf every day and, and love life. Oh, I mean, right? yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think I would, but yeah, it, it feels like the resort <laughs> style of it would get me going a little bit. Eventually. It is, it, it, it is, you it know? is true. Well, and, and luckily too, the re, it is designed to be like a temporary resort. Like yeah. you're just there for yeah. your like four or five days that you're on trial for. So you're yeah, just so going to enjoy you your t- couple night stay, you know, that's true. <laughs> if you're telling nice. me I was only yeah. going to be there for like five to 10 days, then that would be pretty heavenly. I, I'll admit that for sure. But eventually <laughs> I'd want to go see like a punk show and it didn't seem like they had any of that. It seemed like mm. it was all no, bad that's true comedians and <laughs> whatever yeah. else. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do love the one old lady who's like super amazed and is she like, was so cute. did you, did you, did you think that this is what this place would be? And Brooks <laughs> just being like, I, I don't know what it is yet. Like, do you know what it is? He's like, I guess I don't, but it's pretty cool. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I also love uh, that, that that old lady is so adorable in that scene too, where she's just like, uh, do you, like, she just asks him, do you have a while so that she can just start talking? And he's like, yeah, sure. I'm not going anywhere. Um, and then she just like repeats things over and over again, but is still kind of proud of them because it's kind of her motto in life. Like she was an adorable character for the five minutes that she's in it. <laughs> Yeah, but the, he he stays there for his first night where, you know, he's just kind of figuring out the logistics of how this kind of like assembly line of like death and purgatory works where he sees like the next guy coming in. I like the tram person being like, how many of you guys like golf? And like, obviously, most of these people are senior citizens because, mm-hmm. you know, they're he's presuming that most people are dying at, at, at old age and uh, th- th- none of them respond. And she's like, yeah, none of you can lift your arms yet. But tomorrow, you know, you'll be good. You know, that you're <laughs> yeah. just you're feeling that you're feeling the effects of just, you know, being in Judgment City. And um, he does find out that he is not, in fact, in heaven uh, nor hell uh, because, in fact, hell does not exist. Though I hear L.A. is getting pretty close. <laughs> Rip Torn tells him. <laughs> does it imply that murderers many... and like teenagers go somewhere else? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Rip Torn, um, God, God bless the man, uh, Beastmaster, Men in Black, The oh, Insider, yeah. uh, Dodgeball. Got 
Freddie got fingered. <laughs> what a legend. Let's go. Um, he He's playing his defense, his functional sort of defense attorney, even though they don't like to be called that, Bob Diamond, uh, in a very bouncy and very wonderful um, performance. And he It's is like a very like early, like, case. Artie from uh, Larry Sanders show. Yes, for sure. Well, yeah, and and, and I, I, I read apparently that, like, that is why he got that role, actually, ah, was okay. from this. Oh, huh. Um, that makes sense. So I thought that that was sort of interesting. Um, um, but yeah, so he Riptorn gets assigned to his case functionally as his sort of like public defense attorney, um, and and Judgment City is you know revealed to be what it is. It's this bureaucratic sort of middle management review board for the reincarnation process for quote unquote little brained earthlings, um, <laughs> in, in in which you you look back and examine sort of recorded sections of how you chose to live your previous life up until the point of death, and you. Defended against a prosecution team. The idea is, you know, that, you know, only the worst among us keep kind of getting sent back uh, to be improved and the best get promoted to the next phase of existence where we keep getting smarter and growing and less filled with, you know, uh, petrifying existential fears that prevent you from having real feelings and true happiness. And, and, and I like that he does functionally go, so I'm on trial for being afraid. He's like, first of all, I don't call it a trial. But second of all, yes. <laughs> and and, and, yes. and if he is found guilty, he is going to be sent back to Earth uh, to to give it another try, um, which which he does, as Jamie uh, already mentioned, he finds out has already happened 20 times before. And Albert <laughs> Brooks says, oh, great. I'm the dunce of the universe. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a very Woody love, Allen moment. And I love. Uh, yeah, true. Very true. Um, I just love Rip Torn's delivery through all of this because he does come off like he genuinely does want to help this character um but he's also constantly condescending like like uh saying um you know he's like trust me uh when you have more than five percent uh brain usage (laughs) you don't want to be on earth believe me that kind of thing or him rubbing it in his face that he only it only took him like six times to get to this kind of administrative uh position that he's in compared to brooks who has been there 20 times and still failing um I, I just I loved all of those little things that he he does to kind of cut him up a little bit as he's still encouraging. Well, him. And, and every time Brooks asks someone uh, where they're like, we're, we're looking at nine days. We have nine days selected that we are going to be reviewing as part of your your, uh, you know, non trial. Um, mm-hmm. And every single time it comes up from any character, Brooks is like, you know, I don't have really have a con. Like, is that good? Is that a good number? Is that a bad number? Should I be having less? Should I be having more? And every single person just goes, ooh, nine, huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, all but right. They still you move know. on because what I love too yeah. is that everybody has the customer service voice and face on because that's kind of their job because they're they're trying to uphold this whole you know pristine image of the administrative offices and the hotels and all of that. So as soon as they give the impulsive kind of judgmental look of nine days, they instantly go back to, it'll be okay though. Here's your spaghetti. Like just eat up. (laughs) You know, they go right back to the, the false positivity. It's very funny. Yeah, well, because like uh, most of the world is designed in Riptorn, I think is is the best at embodying it. Is mm-hmm. just like they're 
they're at once like kind of warmly probing him and encouraging him as kind of like a character and to like continue his life and everything while also kind of just like roasting him for being an idiot who only <laughs> uses 3% of his brain and doesn't experience the universe in the same way that 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 they do. Like I do love that detail that Rip Dorn is so smart. He can manipulate his sensory experience <laughs> yeah. to the point of enjoying eating a plate of horse shit. <laughs> 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 and and, uh, and and so many times we'll have like a surreal experience like that and like Riptorn will explain the situation to him as if it's like a normal everyday occurrence yeah um you know j- j- just at, at as his lawyer and then just laugh at Brooks's like anxious confused expressions uh, <laughs> at the things that he's saying he's like don't worry about it don't worry about it you know you're all good man yeah. you don't need to think about it <laughs> oh yeah um Oh, and then this is also, I think, the same place where you they introduce it. I guess it's not the scene, but they introduce the the idea that you can go to a certain theater and watch all of the past lives. Now that you've been told that you've had so many past lives, um, and yes. that eventually leads to a good scene that we'll get to. But this is, I think, when he meets uh, Julia at the comedy club. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's funny too yeah. is that I like that Brooks. You know, I, th- I believe he was the sole writer on this this one, right? He didn't even have. Yep, this is yeah. original screenplay through and through. This was his idea. So I like that the way that he he kind of does the meet cute with Julia is just like I'm a funny guy. I'm just gonna be makes Meryl Streep laugh, and that, that that's how I'm gonna yep. that's how I'm gonna do this, boy. It's, Every man's dream, exactly, you know? exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I, I go love to a that comedy club and 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 outstage the actual guy on stage <laughs> right. because you're actually funny and he's not. Yep, that's how he writes it. This it's is this awesome. is this is definitely Albert Brooks's vision of heaven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is his this is his dream first meet cute. He wishes that he could be this smooth, so he's like, I'm writing it in, baby. <laughs> yeah, well, it is funny too that the Judgment City Comedy Club is like the one thing that stands out to him, and you literally get a vision of like a guy trying to make all of these people who are so discombobulated on their first day of being in like dead and and <laughs> trying to make them laugh, and he's doing crowd work literally about them like having recently died, and most of them are elderly, yeah. obviously. So he's like, he goes up to one he's like so how long were you in a coma and he's like i don't know he's like okay here's a a better question elvis living or dead he's like living he's like long art coma (laughs) or or long coma art long coma and uh you know he and he 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 catches brooks and uh where he's like hey you know there's a young guy how'd you die man and he's like on stage like Like you you. Oh, which is which heckle. is both a good joke and a really dark reference to the fact that uh, like his dad died on stage, from what I understand. Yeah, like, like at, at the like Friars a club Club called or the something. Yeah. yeah, at the Friars Club. Oh, um, so and his dad was a comedian as well. So it was just like and I and I think he even makes a reference like imagine if that was my dad up there. Yeah, he does. Wouldn't that be sad or something? Holy yeah, shit. like it's. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit! When I watched it, I was not making all those connections. <laughs> that is actually <laughs> wild. <laughs> yeah. I also and, love but, just but, but him the, plead, like the comedian pleading that they stay just to have like hear the song and they're yeah, like no yeah. not a not not a, not a chance <laughs> and yeah make, making making a woman at a table uh, near him um, uh, laugh is yep. you know like the moment where he's like you know my my life could change here and that yep. woman is Julia played by played by Meryl Streep who between this film and Clint Eastwood's uh, Bridges of Madison County she was like kind of like your go to for a middle-aged, like, romantic-leading woman. And she was pretty mm. incredible at it. Uh, yeah, in, she's in, so in charming. 
heartwarming. using those two films as the examples. Yeah, she, and she's she is like just like kind of glowing in this film. Yeah, she's so funny in in, in, in a so role that I depth. think could have yeah. been seen as like more of like a you know he's she's kind of like a a path or an object for him mm-hmm. to achieve. Right. Um, yeah. And she she may, she gives it so much personality in the mm-hmm. details. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and if anything, just how they're written, you know, she's just an incredibly likable character, and it's not like he's unlikable, but there's just you see more of his, you know, open wounds and and kind of the going through all his judgment videos. You get to know him a little bit more, I guess. But um, with, with her, she's just so naturally charming and funny, and and uh, uh, which is really frustrating to him, and which is part of the gag. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because he's, <laughs> she's too perfect. Yeah, because he's, he's, he's totally like head over heels in a way. Um, but he's also can't help but relate it to his situation that he's currently in, where he knows that in five to nine days, you know, he's going to be either sent back to Earth or sent on to the next thing. And now he's kind of made a, an attachment with with Julia. Um, but I do love that literally every single scene that they have together. There's there's you know dialogue where they learn about each other and we learn about Julia's um, past and how she died and all of that. But a lot of it is, again, just him uh, making her laugh and just riffing back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> and I just love that that is what it is over and over again. He's like, this is what love is. It's making your girl laugh. <laughs> yep. And it's just like, she's perfect. She's clearly led a far more kind and like generous life mm-hmm. she knew the names yep. of the people around her she took care of children she adopted children saved you know, she, she's a burning that's one of the best gag like she, she's only having four days examined versus his nine which is immediately like oh my god like yeah. clearly it, she and like know. the prosecutor's like on her side he's like can i watch that again <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're like, yeah we just wanted to watch it again we didn't actually have anything to review <laughs> like that kind of stuff yeah. and every single judge yeah, her, is like has their their uh face in their hands just kind of just like oh she's beautiful isn't she just a perfect human being <laughs> Yeah, her her lodgings are much more lavish than 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 mm-hmm. his. Like they serve champagne and caviar. They, there's like you know, a, there's had, a she has a personal or... jacuzzi that she <laughs> brags about while he's like staying in the comfort inn for people that like weren't very generous and didn't adopt anybody, as he puts it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's an interesting moment and, with uh, Brooks when they're starting to kind of talk to each other about their their past, and she says like, you know, her marriage was was okay. Um, so it, it kind of feels like, you know, there, there wasn't exactly that spark. She doesn't spend a lot of time, you know, reminiscing or saying I miss him or anything like that. Um, but he has a, an interesting line where he says that his wife was much prettier than he needed. And I guess that kind of connects to <laughs> his, um, the, the way he views himself and like what he's really worth, I guess, or what he feels he was right to accomplish in some sense. Um, it's a bit, you know, it's a bit of a superficial line in, in a way, but I do think it kind of connects to him just not, you know, going for those, like later on we see him not going for any negotiation while he's trying to get more money. You know, it's all built on that fear that they're building in the case. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that line well, is yeah, very telling, it, because- I feel. It is because because he's he's having he's being, you know, like we have his defense attorney trying to claim, you know, all of these reasons why, uh, you know, he he has kind of improved since since his previous life. But he's being prosecuted by uh, Lena, the dragon lady Foster, (laughs) played by Lee Grant, who has selected once again, nine particular days of his life that demonstrate his character and uh are given floor time to the prosecution and the defense to basically interpret them 
um, and for us and for the judges and what they say about him and mean with regards to his growth as a person. And, you know, that they've, they've uh, staged for the two lawyers and, and judges and for him to view like they're watching them in like a small like courtroom movie theater type deal where he's mm-hmm. got like a rotating chair in the middle so he can turn around and watch as if he's like watching dailies and you know where where his life is reduced to clips at certain ages and sta- at, in certain stages of life that he gets to relive memories uh, practically in 3D the judge says <laughs> uh, at one point it's gonna feel weird it's like you're watching a movie bro um <laughs> And, you know, that that will supposedly prove that he is either, you know, still plagued by fears that have haunted him for lifetimes and he is not worthy of proceeding to the next stage of 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 the universe or whether he he actually is. And and many of these clips are uh, some of them are funny. Some of them are just kind of sad. Yeah. Uh, depends on which one. <laughs> depends on which we, we, we they kind of uh, alternate between the two. The first is him just at like nine years old being bullied and not, not fighting back, mm-hmm. uh, which the prosecution positions as like weakness and fear uh, and and which Riptorn counters as, you know, th- that's actually maturity and restraint and, and dignity instilled in him by his father's abuse. And I do love that every once in a while Brooks will just interject into his own case. And he's like, yeah, I feel very good about the restraint idea. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going I, I'm going but, with his answer, even though it was clearly, you know, like fear in some yes, capacity. <laughs> my, one of my favorite parts of his performance when he when he goes through all the videos and, and any time that Riptorn comes up with something uh you can actively see brooks's face kind of go oh yeah you know that's that's pretty good like there's not a chance (laughs) that he would have come up with it he wasn't thinking it himself he didn't even have a reason but um as soon as torn delivers him one he he, you see his face go like oh yeah you know what that's exactly what i was going for (laughs) it's my it's my favorite part throughout the entire film uh watching him do that yeah, there's 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 and there's so many clips that they go through throughout the entire movie. Like there's the, the clip of him protecting his friend in a moment of crisis at 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 school with the whole paints um, situation. And then, like, immediately and then, throwing uh, him under the bus with his dad. Yeah, immediately ratting him out later at 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 home, and so they they start going back and back and forth because it's like you know Rip Torn presented this clip as like look at this moment of bravery where he fell on a sword for his fellow friend, and then she goes let's look a few hours later to where he just completely crumbled and actually got that kid expelled. And, (laughs) you know, it was like, you know, does the act itself count or does the crumbling after the fact indicate, you know, that it that it was worthless? And that becomes so much of the subject and, you know, sort of like the the witnessing of of the trial um, um, about him as he's like constantly wanting to interject against these attacked these attacks made against his 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 character. He's like TV was like heroin to a 10 year old. You know, you, you got to understand. Judge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is, I guess, too going like the back and forth between kind of these more comedic moments uh, right after the the one where he's he's bullied. There's another one that's pretty sad where it's oh, it's yeah. like the first memory he's ever had. It almost seems where he's just in a crib and his parents are just screaming at each other. And that's kind of like, yeah. And his, his dad almost like hits, his to, like, mom hit his mom. And, yeah. But then she yeah. like, doesn't because he sees him. Yeah, yeah, and it's just kind of this formative moment, and I it, it that know, was where he learned nonviolence, you know, <laughs> yeah, restraint, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. So, and it also just feels like it's kind of the 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 foundation of his loneliness a lot of the time too. Given that you open this character going like his his colleagues at his marketing firm are his family, and he thinks that that's so sad, but still laughing about it, you know. So, 
yeah, once you get some context there, it, it gets, it does paint a pretty sad picture as much as there is a lot of humor in it. Yeah, well, and, and, and it is also funny that at a certain point they start just making the case that he was just like bad at, you know, uh, having a more successful career mm-hmm. and, and, yeah. and st- he just get, he starts getting frustrated about like, you know, like they, they show the memory, um, where he missed the, an investment opportunity in Casio watches, because as he puts it, uh, the Japanese don't have the level of precision to make globally recognized timepieces. Now, if you said the Germans were going mm. to, I'd say, take my money, uh, which he turned out to be dead wrong about it. They literally like, li- <laughs> literally the fucking prosecution is like, you know, like, he, you know, he missed out on ten thousand dollars being turned into thirty-seven million dollars mm-hmm. uh, on on this precise moment on this day, and he's just like, I can't believe the point of the universe is to make money. Yeah, and she's like, you know, this isn't about money; it's about fear, you know. And 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 she then brings up like the clip about him firmly and confidently telling his wife, I won't go into that meeting tomorrow with my boss and accept anything less than $65,000 a year. And then followed by a <laughs> great cut to him just immediately walking into the meeting being like, I'll give you 49. He's like, taken, sold, <laughs> yeah. I'm in. Yeah. Like, not even an ounce of negotiation. Yeah, just absolutely nothing. Um, I also, Instantly caves. I also love in this scene that because this this is one of the ones that it just feels like things are building and building uh, on top of them, unfortunately. And it doesn't help that the Riptorn doesn't show up to like two of these sessions out of the out of the five or six that are shown. And this is the first one. And that lawyer that they get is the most passive lawyer ever. He just does <laughs> absolutely nothing. He thinks He's like, like I'm good. whatever <laughs> answer Brooks gives was you know good enough where they should just move on because it'd be against the case. But he acted doesn't do anything it's it's very funny to watch brooks just like what kind of system is this what is what is going on here (laughs) yeah he he just like appears to be like throwing his case not countering not presenting any of his own clips every single time it comes back to him they're like do you want to counter do you want to say anything do you have a clip of your own that you've brought or or and my favorite ones are the ones where he literally just reacts and he goes Wow, the prosecution's making a good case against you. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. you really did miss out on that investment deal, man. Yeah. Wow. Oh my god. I also I also think it's there's something to be said that I don't think anything is stopping him from like arguing against them himself. I, I don't think there was anything that they say in the beginning that he can't at least try to. And there is something to be said about his character the lack of him trying at all uh while the mm. lawyer is doing this. He still is kind of just looking over to the lawyer and being like, could you do this for me? In a sense, mm-hmm. it's the same way that he's treating Rip Torn when he gets, you know, pleasantly surprised that he comes up with a good defense for him, but he doesn't do anything himself. He's just letting the lawyer do all the work. And unfortunately this lawyer decides to do nothing. Um, mm-hmm. So I found that interesting too. He doesn't, he doesn't really put a lot of effort there. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, and, and, and worth noting too, that the, um, uh, substitute defense attorney is also played by Buck Henry, mm-hmm. um, which is he's in the graduate. He's in to die for. He's in uh, the 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 big one of note uh, is uh, uh, the man who fell to earth, where we talked about oh, him because yeah. he's in that movie with Rip Torn. So those two guys ah. were briefly reunited. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So thanks to uh, Albert Brooks for for that one. And well, and and is is he also there when uh, she presents the compilation? 
which is one of the best moments <laughs> in the film. When she's like, I have collected... <laughs> yes, I have collected 164 general misjudgments over 12 years. Some of them out of fear, some of them out of just pure stupidity. And it just, the whole movie just briefly turns into a wonderful Albert Brooks, like, yeah, like, fail clipshow yeah, yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such a smart um, and funny way of just being able to do that, where he's just like, yeah, I just want to get hit in the nuts and spill food and whatever else, but being presented <laughs> like in this, in this case. I, I do like the one where he just crashes the car while he's, like, walking it to a gas station after running out of gas, and the car just, like, hits a camera. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god! One of my favorites is him, uh, him trying to get the satellite on the on the roof, and he's just sprawled out entirely, trying to not have the satellite fall, but not have him fall as well. It's just like the most desperate situation. There's there's some great <laughs> ones in that montage. Yeah, Albert Brooks getting the chance to do a classic spit take moment when he drinks shampoo instead of a wash. <laughs> um, hilariously misoperating a chainsaw and just having it like you know just. Weird around on screen right in front of them <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that one's one wild. Of, <laughs> one of them is just him buying a used car from people who are like clearly like sketchy and them just maniacally <laughs> laughing at him i was like is that really his fault even you, you know i guess he got duped <laughs> he got duped. that is what's funny is that a lot some some of the things that they do and most of them are examples of him making the decision or just the the lack of decision making but but some of them are just outwardly mean spirited in a way that it's like he, he didn't have anything to do with that people are just assholes so that, that those parts are kind of funny that they're even using that stuff against him um and he kind of actively calls on it a, a little bit like uh just when he does say like that's out of context or something like that um so i, I do like that he's still somewhat actively arguing against those moments but just not enough which is true to his character yeah yeah, but 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 many of these like so the, the movie is structured around going between these various sort of like courtroom sessions where he is quite literally defending his life um, and and then, you know, kind of getting an, an opportunity for this sort of like meet cute situation with Meryl Streep where, you know, he he's he's having a vision of what his life maybe could look like if he was given the chance to pass on because it's very clear that she is just she she's going to make it. Like she's she's going to the other side. Like when he walks in on the clip of what her thing her <laughs> sessions are going like and it is literally just a video of her saving uh, her kids uh, from their burning house and then running back in and going and grabbing the fat cat and everyone being <laughs> like, oh, what kind of cat is that? It's like, oh, it's a Persian. Oh, I love Persians, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like like the, her prosecutor judges are all just enjoying the clip. There's just a joy to watch her life and there's no doubt that she'll be moving forward due to how, you know, perfect um she is mm -hmm. and so 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 this is why you know like th this time spent with her for him is kind of fleeting because he's not sure if he's going to go on to the other world or or not but he is kind of just like briefly enjoying it like when they do the scenes where that are just like cute and fun like when they go to the past lives pavilion oh, yeah. which is like this hologram booth hosted by shirley mcclane um <laughs> who i guess was deliberately stunt casted here because she was in a bit of controversy for saying that she believed in reincarnation <laughs> and like had could see her past lives and stuff so it actually is like a oh, that's deliberate like, that gag for that why crazy <laughs> yeah no, it doesn't. <laughs> That's awesome, though. I didn't know that. That's a good tie into that joke. 
Yeah, so that so that that's why she's running the 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 hologram the hologram booth that shows you the past lives that 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 you've lived, where you get a a little bit of classic Albert Brooks uh, racial humor, <laughs> <laughs> which pops up a couple times in the film. <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe the stuff that hasn't aged aged the most uh, the most well. Albert Brooks as an indigenous man running away from a lion trying trying to eat him while she's Prince Valian, or the various. There's a couple awkward like uh, like one Asian lady. Jokes. It's like, a, like a sumo wrestler. And she just screams at looking at the sumo wrestler. Yeah, when, the, and, the and, and the was a little strange. The sumo wrestler at first was kind of funny just because the old lady yeah. was so like, small. Why but, it seems cool. I'd be happy yeah, to know yeah, what's that. Sumo that's terrifying. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, it's like that. <laughs> But I do. Yeah, well, and it's the it's, it's the same thing with the Japanese seafood restaurant bit, mm-hmm. where it just like it, at least with that you could maybe argue that this is like this is just a vision of like a again like a white middle class, like they're like yeah, you know yeah. we we they, they kind of had a little bit of like that that uh, east and, meets west anxiety that kind of hit in the nineties, sure, yeah. so maybe that's a bit of meant to be a bit of a translation of that. I'm not sure. And but the rhythm. There's a couple it, jokes in there that not not quite didn't, don't quite land in the same way. I think. Yeah, I think I think the rhythm of the the whole like overly positive japanese restaurant is is funny um but yeah yeah, yeah i guess like the the kind of uh the the, the superficial or uh, uh stereotypical accent kind of thing can be a little bit you know that's straight from the 70s for sure mm-hmm. um but but the rhythm of them like actively being uh, excited about the guy going pee just because they have <laughs> like the best customer service i think was very funny yeah. Um, yeah, there's still some good jokes in there. Yeah, yeah, but but yeah, to your point, definitely there, there's some, you know some some humor that is a little bit it belongs in the 70s, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or as, I guess um, this is 90s. I keep saying 70s. I was thinking of uh, real life. I guess this is 90s actually. Yeah. Yeah, but but again, I I do think part of that joke is meant to be that you know like this is this is the uh, the, the, the the kind of restaurant that a, a white middle class American mm-hmm. envisions and, and and wants to be at and thinks is like on on the on the cutting edge yeah. and uh, yeah. Um, yeah and and in 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 the in the case of the sort of like past lives pavilion, it is just meant to be like this uh, this this very sort of like you know, silly international vision of what reincarnation would, would, would look like. And his is meant to, so, you know, contrast I think Meryl Streep even goes, what you were like a native guy in yours. Like, wow, that's crazy. While she's just like munching on popcorn and like corn dogs. <laughs> one, you know? one of my favorite moments is when they're just making out and, uh, as they're making out, they can't help but talk about snacks and food at the same time. It's, it's a great moment for them. I'm just like, this is their relationship relationship just wrapped up just 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 humor and food that's 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 what it is that's Um, ideal yeah yeah sounds sounds great yeah well and 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 there is a lot of charm to just again the way that those two are you know like actually connecting on screen and they have a lot of chemistry together Mm -hmm. brooks is a very good writer i i really like that um moment where you know he is trying to be kind of you know, open with her and he's being like, you know, these screenings are, you know, really tough for me in, in a way that I, like, I, I don't think they are for you, but when I hang out with you, like I completely forget about them. Like I mm-hmm. just, I instantly feel okay. The second I'm out of that screening room and I'm just hanging out with you, just eating food with you. 
And, uh, you know, and, and, but, but he also self doubts that because of just who he is. And he goes, but, but I also, I remember reading that, like, you had to be okay with yourself first before you can be okay with another person. So you're not bringing any baggage to the table. That's going to like ruin the relationship or hurt them or something. And he goes, you know, and I feel okay with you, but I don't know how okay I was with myself before I met you. So maybe you're making me okay. (laughs) He's like overanalyzing it. And, And then I love her delivery of just like, you're not that okay and he's like (laughs) okay (laughs) (laughs) like there's 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 a lot of like you know just very charming kind of like witty um you know uh exchanges that they're delivering and and brooks is really good at in that kind of mode where he'll like spin a story about her like dying tripping over a lounge chair near a pool and he'll spin it into a joke about how they're adding like patio furniture to the next olympic (laughs) swim meet you know yeah (laughs) yeah and uh and, 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 and she does eventually, you know, kind of inspire him to, you know, really want to conquer some of his flaws and it go to the next, go to the next realm just out of like, just the pure kind of glowing natural, you know, and, and kind of an intelligence that, 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 that she has. Like, I love that cute moment when they like briefly dizzyingly like walk in the wrong direction after kissing each other for the first time and have to circle back and kind of yeah. like walk past each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's again, cute. and it's like this awkward kind of like bumping into each other. The, the, the cameras are staged really well for the moment. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really well conceived, which is interesting to me considering that he didn't, uh, intend for this to be a Meryl Streep um, role yeah. until she apparently like asked about it. <laughs> yeah, apparently <laughs> at, they had, like, at, at Carrie Fisher's party or something. Yeah, That's what I saw. He said mm-hmm. that she was just so natural. I guess I, I I could imagine that, and I don't know this, but I could imagine a lot of their dialogue sequences had a, 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 a improv involved mm-hmm. just because of how natural it feels. I don't know if that's the case. It just it gives off a lot of the thing where they might have had kind of a guide. Um, mostly with the flirting scenes. Obviously, there's stuff where they're kind of progressing their characters specifically and and the plot, but a lot of the flirting just seems so off the cuff and natural. Um, they're just mm-hmm. they're very very good at it. Well, well, Albert Brooks did meet her at a party, so maybe it stemmed from that. Maybe he was trying to get his flirt game on, and she <laughs> yeah. was actually more receptive. She was like, because I because I, I I think he describes it as he went to Carrie Fisher's party. She was there. He was working. He was writing this movie, and he described it to some of the people at the party. And Meryl Streep, he thought jokingly, said, "You know, is there a part in it for me?" And then, mm-hmm. and, and apparently, he like went home and was like, "Was she being serious?" And Aww. then he he called her and asked her, and she was like, "Yeah." And he was like, "All right, well, this is I'm." He's like, "I complete like rewrote the role entirely Aww. for Meryl Streep." That's yeah. really sweet. <laughs> Yeah. And, yeah, and I guess even like in a, in a sense, um, and we'll we'll get to the specifics, but the the ending, I guess he changed too. And I don't know if that was based on just him wanting oh, really? to do a more romantic comedy ending in a sense, um, uh, or if it was like you know we have we have Meryl Streep now. I'm I'm changing it because of of this. It's, there's just too much chemistry here. There's there's too much to uh, to use because um, I think originally he was supposed to like go back to earth, but as a horse or something uh. like that. And, uh, that's pretty that, funny. That sounds funny. very 1970s Albert Brooks. Yes, <laughs> it does. It definitely does. So I think over the times a- that he, I think it took him like two or three years to write this, uh, something like that. So in time, it seems he got a little nicer to the character. <laughs> yeah. Something, some, something changed in, in Albert Brooks and, uh, 
he got he he got a little bit more uh sweet yeah you know he yeah. was like he was I, secretly I, in I, love I, with I have, a, I have a very different vision for the albert brooks persona character maybe he can change maybe yes. he can yeah. uh you know succeed and uh which which, which he, he he tries to experiment I mean, like it's not looking good like as his sessions are starting to come to an end even with uh um rip torn back and defending him which i do like that gag where he's like where were you he's like i'm just curious and he's like i tell you but you wouldn't understand he's like and that's not an insult like you literally won't understand he's <laughs> like you know don't treat me like a moron you know he's like okay i was trapped near the inner circle of thought he's like, i don't understand he's like i fuck i told you you know like <laughs> oh my god what's funny too and, about rip torn's approach when he is in the uh the actual uh trial or whatever you want to call it um is that a lot of the clips that he chooses um don't actually seem very beneficial for him a lot of the time he spins them in that way but a lot of the time while I was looking at them, I'm like, is this the prosecutor's clip or is this Rip Torn's? I can't really. <laughs> yeah, can't which, tell right which now. The, the assumption becomes that Rip Torn is doing a really good case and that these are the best clips that he has. <laughs> yeah. You know, like. yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my God. Some it, of them are very it, funny it, in that way. It really needs to be um, spun. And yes. uh, yeah, like like he's the one who shows the clip of him um, having the like anxiety attack and stage fright. Um, right where uh, there's that great backstage wonder of his co-worker forcing uh, him up on stage and he just like instantly fumbles but he's saved by the fact that there's a gas leak situation that evacuates the room yep and uh, you know like he like he goes look at that bravery it took for him to go out on that stage and she's like but he froze and he got saved by uh, by the gas leak and he never and he never got up on stage yeah. and like reclaimed his moment ever again so and, that, and he was like I, I chose you know not to do that though you know like it, it's, it's the same thing when they showed the, the uh, crashing snowmobile right. and like crawling miles to his safety or or whatever you know rip torn's like this is showing courage and the conquering of 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 the fear of pain and death and mm -hmm. and he just goes you just showed him wiping out on a snowmobile <laughs> and having basic survival instincts <laughs> like you know like what are you doing <laughs> yeah yeah and that, that's that's something i like that the prosecutor does is where it's constant basically where they set something up like that and they're like yeah but you never returned so that's kind of the proof that um, you you didn't. It was based on fear because you never tried again. And I do like Brooks. Yeah, but Brooks constantly. nails his excuse for the snowmobile, though. Oh, because when, yeah. when when he when when the, when the when he goes, he actually does. You know, start working as his own defense attorney to the judges about the snowmobile. He's like, it wasn't because I was afraid of the snowmobile. It's because it was just. It's a bad device. Yeah, it's a badly designed you know, poorly made device, you know, it burned the hair off my balls, yeah. you know, and the one judge is like, Oh, you know, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, Fair enough. You know, <laughs> I do also like though, that there's a little bit of, of contradiction with like his excuses because a lot of the time he'll come up with something that just seemed like with, I can't exactly remember what the stage excuse was. I do think he had one. I can't remember, but with the snowmobile one, it's what you said, but I find it interesting that before he crashes, he looks like he's having the fucking time of his life. He's like wooing oh, yeah. and hollering and just being like, I love this snowmobile. He might as well be saying that. And <laughs> then for him to say after he crashes and goes through the like hell that the three mile crawl would be, um, then he's like, the snowmobile is actually awful. 
awful. And that's the reason I didn't go under it. So I kind of, I kind of believe him in a way, but there does seem to be a little bit of contradiction in the clip, which I think is very interesting. It's like, you can't tell sometimes whether or not he's making the excuse because he genuinely believes in it, or it's usually a, a little bit, but both. It's like he genuinely believes it, but he's probably bullshitting a tiny bit because he knows what mm. kind of situation that he's in. Yeah, no, I, after a while, you do realize that, you know, the prosecutor's being harsh, especially early on when she's yeah. like judging him for like just being a kid who gets beat up and like, <laughs> yeah. you know, but like, but like for the most part, we do end up being like, yeah, the prosecutor is kind of right, especially mm -hmm. when he gets into the more sort of like, uh, you know, sort of like the, the, the self-defeating kind of adult perspective when he mm -hmm. is just like, you know, clearly making sort of like cowardly decisions, which is, you know, like she ends up completely destroying him uh, because he's he still operates that way when he's not in the prosecution room. Because like when he goes to the Italian restaurant with Meryl Streep, right. which is as the iconic scene of her slurping a giant piece of linguine <laughs> for like an entire minute. The whole um, scene, yeah. Which is just that the display of Albert Brooks's genius is that he could turn Meryl Streep slurping a piece of linguine into a gag that lasts that long, <laughs> and that it's and it's also adorable. Yeah, um, totally. And um, and I love it's a her great just scene. like her her actual genuine love for him, where she goes up to he gets all nervous because the prosecutor shows up to the dinner. And um, and she just walks over to He's her. like, the prosecutor's going to judge me for being a pig and eating too much because this overzealous Italian waiter keeps <laughs> over serving me. He's like, I, I don't want nine pies to represent my nine days, you know, and he's just like, I'll bring your pies. <laughs> yeah. You're shy. I'll bring your Followed stick. by the great gag of, of him literally carrying the nine pies like out of the restaurant in front of everyone, too. It's just it's great. Oh, yeah, it's great. And I just I love that moment of from from Julia where she just goes up to the prosecutor as she's going to the bathroom is just like he's a great guy and just starts to say like praise him basically to try to help him um she's just such a genuinely kind-hearted character I, I I really love every time she's on screen yeah well and 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 it's in like this this moment with her where he you know he he really is having a great time he this is really something that he he should be exploring um, that the two stories like really do fully connect in the moment where he is acknowledging that like, you know, she, he has feelings for her. She's expressing feelings for him because I think she has this really nice line about being like, you know, I kind of make it seem like maybe my life is really easy, but I have a talent for making life work and it actually takes a lot of, 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 of hard work to pull that off. Mm -hmm. Um, to to actually make make life feel kind of effortless in that way, and she's like, my time with you actually does just feel effortless. Like we just walk around, and you just make me laugh, and we have a great time. And you know, she totally, you know, basically gives expresses the exact same things that 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 he is feeling and being like so that's why if you want to tonight, like we should spend the night together. Like you should mm -hmm. come over and stay in my hotel. And he basically, in a moment of sort of like panic, he's just like, I decide not to do it. And, and sort of similar to his to his argument about how he married like a woman that was like just a smidge too pretty for him. Mm -hmm. And it ruined his life, which is just such a like a neurotic sort of like it is. It is a straight up Woody <laughs> Allen move. Um, 
in this one, he has a similar thing, too, where he's like, you know, either two things will happen. Either I go up and have sex with you and it's like the best thing that's ever happened to me. And then I'll never get to have it again because I'm going back to Earth and you're leaving Mm -hmm. or um, it will be terrible. And I can't even (laughs) fantasize about not knowing that it might have been the greatest thing ever anymore. Um, and those are his two reasons behind it, even though really ultimately it is that he's just afraid to, you know, fall in love with her and then lose her. Yeah. You know, like that's just it. It, it is just, you know, it is expressing a, the, the exact kind of cowardly fear that he is on trial for caving, um, towards, um, this, the, the, this entire time that he won't even, uh, allow himself this kind of moment with her, which he instantly regrets in that great moment when he calls her hotel and he leaves messages for the, the two, two Julians. Julians on file. <laughs> Tell them I love them both. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh man, desperate times. And, Yes, and it and and it does result in the last session of his trial where Rip Torn tries to present a clip of him going on a trip to Hong Kong after a messy divorce that left him with little savings, and they were like, look, look at him wasting all of his savings on a first-class ticket out of, like, bravery, so which, again, a little bit of a stretched clip. People. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of a stretch, Rip Torn. Not, actually, I'm not sure you need to save that one for the final, yeah, if that's you know, the final, final day. Move, he did not have a lot to work with. I even wrote in my notes i'm like this defense is awful like just so yeah, this, is a, this is a little weak it's a little weak but again you have to you have to wonder is this just what rip torn's working with is exactly. this the best that he was actually offered up by albert brooks's <laughs> life and 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 the prosecution lee grant just fucking destroys him by showing a clip from yeah. last night where he denies his intense feelings of love completely out of fear, playing this this clip of him turning down Meryl Streep and being like, I'm tired of being judged. Mm-hmm. And uh, and having that sort of ironically used as evidence against him is like kind of like a, a really sad moment for him. And, and of course, he's judged as you're going back to Earth, bro. Yeah, and nope. it's such a, a genuine moment for him. It's the first time I think he's like, he, he can't lie. There's no more bullshit. Uh, there's no more bullshit excuses or any like just and, and, he's, he, and he's not spinning it into a riff he's just being completely open yeah he just you know? looks dead like, at the prosecutor and he's just like i'm i was afraid basically saying exactly what she's been trying to prove the entire time and this is the only kind of honest moment he's had with himself because yeah even though rip torn tries to spin it into <laughs> well at first it was he was a you know he just he didn't want to get an std you know <laughs> have you have you heard of aids uh, miss mrs prosecution you know <laughs> i rest my case yeah and, and even albert brooks is like dude like come <laughs> like, on no i didn't have think some, that she have had some some you know <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah it's 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 a very real i do love it just because you see him bullshit for so long and that it, that's a he's just done he's just kind of like yeah that move that was bad i should i should have i should have said i love you back and i should have made my made my move yeah but well even even though it is a double-edged sword too right because if the prosecution wasn't being as hard on him during the actual sessions he maybe would have thought he was going to the next stage of existence and then maybe he would have done it right, right. so it is it, it is interesting that like he does admit right then and there that like yeah you're right 
but it was like a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that she ended up being right because mm-hmm. of the circumstances she created is why he contributed to his doubt in that moment too right so yeah. it is, it's a really interesting kind of moment which is what leads to the big you know sort of cathartic rom-com finale which i do think is really well done yeah, it's and, really beautiful and really does yeah well, because because that that's just it is master it, element to it too. Just speaking exactly, on the prosecution exactly. and the defense. Yeah, that that that's what I was kind of getting at. That right. this idea that the prosecution almost inspires him through presenting this very you know this this situation that's making him afraid and being like, will he rise to the occasion? Was this all an elaborate bit of movie staging to get him to change and to you know reflect on his life and like all that kind of stuff? So it's great, and it's and and Riptorn even tells him, you know, you look, they've judged that you're going back to Earth for another round, but he's like, that doesn't mean they're right. You know, they can make a mistake. Don't let don't don't let others, uh, you know, g- g- get get you to follow, you know, like what what's in, you know, oh, he's like, follow what's in here, man. His you heart. know, do do do. Yeah, do do what's best for you, which is great in a in in it leads to this great set piece where he's boarded on the universal tram back to Earth, which is a funny statement. <laughs> and he hands his ticket. He gets strapped in and but he sees and he can hear Julia on another tram headed to the great beyond because it is funny that they make them leave at the same time <laughs> it's kind of cruel on opposite sides of like a giant like tarmac basically and they're like here's the four people who suck shit here's the four people who are awesome <laughs> yeah. look at them. they're look they're going to live their two you, different lives <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, to just disappear from each other yeah it is kind of cruel <laughs> yeah and it, and it does turn into this beautiful little set piece where he, you know, you know, Julia is screaming for him. He's screaming for Julia, Julia, Julia. <laughs> and he's breaking his way out of the tram. He's ripping his seatbelt off. Being electrocuted. And he is going like, yeah, he's getting electrocuted he by the, he's by nearly like getting run over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Multiple times. <laughs> he literally, he plays Frogger for like a couple seconds <laughs> yep. with all of the universal trams. Um I do, I a, do love yeah, the a, design too of this place where it's just kind of like a, it, it's just like a, a, it almost feels like it's in a void or something going into the tunnels mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, yeah, it's like a giant tarmac leading to a bunch of individual tunnels. Yeah. It's an interesting design. It's very, yeah, it does feel kind of science fictiony for sure. But yeah, yeah, and then eventually he 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 gets up to the to the right bus and he's just screaming, "I love you." You know, they they eventually uh, get the doors open and they embrace, and it's a beautiful thing. They're going yeah. off. Yeah, though I though I though I do love the moment that they open the doors. That does kind of, you know, give the idea that this was all a little bit of staging. Yes. is that you know, like the the set piece itself that we're watching becomes the movie that the two lawyers and the mm. judges are all watching mm-hmm. and they're all moved by this display that they're yeah. seeing on the screen of this guy who's going through all of this effort to get to her. I won't let you go. You know, like I'm coming for you, Julia. And they're so moved by, uh, this display of courage, uh, that, that, that Albert Brooks literally like seizes control of his own movie that he's mm-hmm. been being forced to watch because so much of this has been clips of his own life that have been kind of, as we've seen throughout projected onto a screen, like they are like an actual, you know, dailies or movie that he's editing or something. And they're being manipulated by the two sides to kind of tell, tell a story about his life and what his life means. And here is this guy where, you know, the cathartic, realization the the romantic uh you know climax of the movie is a guy literally like taking control of you know like realizing that 
taking command of the movie and being like, I'm going to do this thing anyway that all of these characters said I couldn't do. Mm-hmm. Yep. And now, you know, I chose optimism over pessimism. And it, and it, it does feel like Brooks after like a decade and a half, <laughs> or I guess maybe even two decades, if you would count the early 70s, mm-hmm. uh, of being like a postmodern cynic. Mm-hmm. He really was like, I'm going to, the Hollywood schmaltz, it was in me the whole time. <laughs> I could do it beautifully. I could make you cry. Sells it so and, well. Uh, yeah. You know, and 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 I and he didn't have to sacrifice the stuff that made him special to to do it. Like so much of mm-hmm. this movie still has, you know, that that level of wit and satire and cleverness in the filmmaking. And it's I don't know, it's it's, it's kind of magical that an Albert Brooks movie ends this way, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is, you know kind of makes me appreciate it more. I don't really see it as like a like a you know him caving to formula as much mm-hmm. as him doing formula really really well. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. It doesn't. It has that traditional romantic comedy ending you know they you know they embrace they kiss they tell each other they love each other but the 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 setup to it is by no means um at least like the the very traditional formulaic thing it doesn't feel like you're you know you're about to see the big fight that they have before they inevitably get back together and all that kind of crap you know what i mean Mm. every every setup is still very uniquely brooks um it's just that it's still in this very accessible romantic comedy kind of package. Um, and honestly, I think he sells the the finale very well. I'm, I think that the character deserves to go off into that tunnel and yeah, totally. uh, be in love with Meryl Streep. Good for him, you know? We all do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, that is... Uh defending your life we're pivoting mm-hmm. towards the reductive rating round this one also very solid four for me again brooks toning down uh some of the uh the 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 very sort of like uh meta cringe comedy aspects of of his earlier movies and delivering something a little bit more gentle um and and and, and formulaic but still in a way that's again incredibly witty incredibly uh, formally ambitious. This might be one of his most formally ambitious movies, just if we're looking at it in terms of the way that it's shot. Like he's got Spielberg cinematographer mm-hmm. uh, for the 80s, Alan uh, DeVoe on this film, giving it a very kind of bright, dreamy glow. He's got incredible production design um, that makes this afterlife, again, if we've described as like this review board bureaucracy purgatory of hotels and restaurants and offices and sort of like um, amusement park resort, um, you know, um, style uh, places to kind of hang out in. And and it, it has a really kind of sound idea that is is, you know, both very optimistic, but also clearly coming from a little bit of a place of tragedy. Like you can feel that this was like, you know, he was imagining you know, uh, a, an afterlife after having experienced a, you know, very monumental loss of his, you know, father comedian, um, which which he directly references in the film and which he, you know, clearly is kind of wrestling with a, a little bit. And this idea of like, can a person change? Can a person conquer these, you know, things that they maybe felt while they were here afterward? And there's something very romantic about, you know, kind of gifting that to, you know, someone kind of after the fact and gifting it to himself a little bit mm-hmm. um, and, and you know, displaying a little bit of change over his own career and his own attitudes about, you know, um, what 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 comedy, you know, uh, 
he's capable of doing. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, again, there's a there's something sort of whimsical about this. There's something kind of, you know, but but still, you know, it still has that sharp sense of satire to it. It still has a matureness and a sort of thoughtfulness to it. And yeah, he's you know, he he's an incredibly uh, gifted director um especially at getting very natural performances out of out of actors his chemistry with streep in this is incredible yeah. rip torn is really great in this movie and such a warm uh boisterous fun presence in the entire film and yeah this is it's just it's very well once again like real life as an idea it's a clever idea and it's well conceived and it's well filmed so like brooks you know not just a incredible comedian like a very good filmmaker very good director yeah yeah uh, i totally agree um solid four again i definitely want to go and watch the things that are in between this uh, lost in america and modern romance i would just love to see that that evolution because it is it has been interesting to go from like his very cynical um uh, kind of meta quality that he has in real life and then go to this more, more, I don't know, heartfelt, genuine place in defending your life. I, it was, it was quite the, uh, the, the trip to kind of go one to the other. So I, yeah, I want to see that evolution a little bit. Yeah, but. dude, if, if you follow this up with modern romance, mm-hmm. which is him also doing a rom-com thing, but it's just the most uncomfortable rom-com <laughs> of all time. So it's like defending uh, your yeah, life just... romance with real life's, uh, <laughs> kind of cynicism. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Yes. That basically, great. that sounds unbelievably <laughs> good. Um, but yeah, I, so I'm gonna I'm gonna dive deep into into Albert Brooks because I I think I'm gonna absolutely love everything that this guy does. Um, but yeah, he's he's he was really good at doing the more traditional romantic comedy, um, but it still has all his quirks and it never feels like uh, generic. It doesn't feel like. Um, it, you know, you kind of know that you're going towards the happy ending, but how you get there, I think there's a lot of great twists and turns and a lot of good characterization. And yeah, like you said, the 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 uh, the chemistry between Streep and Brooks is unbelievable. You just feel so warm inside every time that they're together and laughing together and um, playing mini golf. It's it's great. And I also the one thing I wanted to add because this just seems like such a Brooks thing. He can't help but be the funny man, you know, even these characters mm-hmm. that he writes for himself is very much like someone that would be a comedian. Um, yeah. And I love that there are multiple times in this movie where his character will say something. And it's not just when he's making Meryl Streep laugh. There's there's p- parts where he just says a joke and he'll actually take the time to cut to like one of the judges and the judge will just chuckle at one of his jokes and then the scene will proceed to go on. And I just think it's very funny that he was like, yeah, he's a funny character. Even the judges laugh at his humor. Um, so I, I got a real kick wrong? out of that too. I think some of his, like his, his confidence is it itself is very funny. Um, he, he knows that he's a funny man. So, um, yeah, this is great. Four out of five yeah, um, for you, Michael. I think it's like my favorite Brooks movie that I've seen. Like, there's like a handful that I haven't seen yet, but I just think it's like a really like beautiful, like funny and wonderful movie. Uh, I think it's a conception that afterlife is like really fun. It feels like very influential the way they deal with like this, like afterlife is a bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like mm-hmm. the rom-com angle is really great. Uh, their chemistry is fantastic. I think like street brings like a really like grounded uh, perspective to like a character that could come off as like very generically perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brooks is just like very yeah. like charming despite being like this real schlub I think he's just like really funny and just really delightful in this movie and like the ending like all is like really it really hits me hard I, I think it's great well uh, that will I think wrap it up for defending uh, your life and for this week's episode 
Uh, once again, that was Real Life from 1979 and Defending Your Life from 1991. Thanks so much, Michael, for uh, bringing these films and, yeah. and, and for joining us this week. Uh, while, while you're uh, here, do you got anything uh, uh, cooking up? You got anything you want to plug? Uh, you guys follow me on Twitter at, uh, at Sriracha Chow. I've been uh, doing a bunch of little cartoon shorts. You can follow me on there. Uh, they're usually I pins. saw. You did, you, did, you, you, did, you, did, you did a little holiday short. I yeah, saw. Yeah, I've done a couple of those. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so just check them out. I usually have them pinned. Uh, yeah, so you can visit there. Sweet. Hell yeah, definitely do that. up For our listeners, we're going to be back in uh, one week's time where uh, we are going to be going holiday horror mode once again. We're going to be talking about uh, Curtis Harrington's uh, Whoever Slew Auntie Rue from 1972, and then another one called Home for the Holidays, which I think is also from 1972. So we're going 1972 sort of holiday horror mode uh, next week. Awesome. Uh, exclusively over on the Patreon. And then in two weeks' time, it's that time of year. Oh, boy. Uh, the best genre movies of 2023. Uh, the big uh, year-end episode. Jamie and I are Clockwork Orange style strapping ourselves <laughs> in. Am I ever? up on every new release uh, genre movie <laughs> that came out this year in hopes of generating a big old list. And... Uh, yeah, as 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 always, uh, we will try to keep it under four hours <laughs> and uh, trying our but, best. I mean, we get the stats every year. Uh, it is our always our most listened to episode of the year and one yeah. of our episodes where we get the most new listener discoveries who find the show through it. So even though it's you know, four we, hours, we, 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 <laughs> even though it's that long, people, that's how many people want to hear about all the uh, two hours of honorable mentions of genre <laughs> movies you maybe hadn't heard of that came out, which is oh. usually what happens. So. <laughs> Similar similar things are going to be happening again, I imagine. I'm so sure. stay tuned for that in two weeks' time over on the main feed. But uh, yeah, until then, uh, that wraps it up for everything this week. Thanks so much for listening, and keep it easy. Keep it sleazy.